you are listening to the first episode of our podcast, The Thing Is. And when we recorded this podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we did so online because of the lockdown situation. Uh, the sound quality, unfortunately, was a bit varied. So I do apologize for that. I still hope you enjoy our first episode of The Thing Is, 1985 and a Secret Wish. Hello everybody and welcome to this first episode of my podcast. My name is Tobias, the guy with the broken English. I'm originally from Sweden and for the longest time I wanted to do a podcast talking about one of my biggest passions in life and that is music. I know it's not unique in any way, shape or form. A lot of people are doing this but I just wanted to do it. And it's a bit sad because it took isolation for me to get started, actually. A lot of time on my hands. Uh, so that's an upside with this whole weird situation that we're in now. And I'm really grateful if you tuned into this. Uh, the concept behind this is for me to go through the albums, the singles that influenced me, that impacted me in one way or the other. From when I was growing up until today, basically. And since I was growing up in Sweden, I listened to a lot of Swedish music. And for those albums or singles and tracks, uh, I'm going to do those podcasts in Swedish because it doesn't make sense to do those in English because if it's sung in Swedish, yeah, you know. But everything else, if it's sung in English, we're going to do the podcasts in English. Okay, so where to start with this first episode of my podcast? I had this long list of uh, albums, singles, tracks that I wanted to talk about, and I found it particularly hard to choose something for this first episode. There was so much to choose from. But then I remember I had a discussion not long ago with a friend of mine here in the UK, and we spoke about propaganda and their debut album, A Secret Wish. So I thought, yeah, let's go with that one. It's one of my favorite albums, and uh, let's make that the topic of this episode. But I also wanted to talk about the label they were on at this time, Sangtam Tam, because they had this huge success the previous year in 1984, especially with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, of course. But it seems like going into 1985, things started to wind down a bit, in a sense. So hopefully we're going to capture that and try to see what happened in 1985. And not only with Sanctum Tom and um, Propaganda, but we're also going to discuss a lot of things around the musical climate at that time. A lot of big artists were releasing albums that have become milestones since then. It should be interesting. And I'm really glad that you're here with us for this journey. I think we'll kick it off. And I want to kick things off by saying, Hello to Gideon, my co-host for today. How are you doing? Hiya, Tobias. Yeah, great, thanks. Just like me, you're a fan of propaganda and especially the debut album, The Secret Wish, which we are going to focus on today. And then hopefully it's going to be a really fun journey. Well, I remember this music when it first came out and I waited and um, was longing for this to come out. Um, I'm fascinated by what they were going to actually release on the album. I was spending a lot of time um, uh, listening to music that was associated or um, connected in directly or indirectly to the uh, band Propaganda. 
and um, uh, I've sort of been interested ever since, really. So, yeah. So it was the music that you were listening to at that point that made yes, you yes. actually uh, yeah. buy the album. That's that's right. Uh, the album. Um, there was a lot of expectation around um, the album when it came out, or before it came out, and there was a lot of um, promotional material about the album from when it came out. And I, I went out and bought it. I went out and bought it pretty much, I think, the same week it was released. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, well, it's basically the same for me. Um, we're actually going to talk about two albums in this podcast, and they're tightly connected to each other. As I mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk about Propaganda's A Secret Wish, but they also released, or at least Sanctum Tom, their label released uh, something called Wishful Thinking. So we will cover both of them, but we will start with um, A Secret Wish, of course. But for me, it was a bit in reverse because sometime later on in 1985, I picked up this album by Propaganda, which I thought was the main album, which was called Wishful Thinking, where it turned out it wasn't. So I think it's back in December 1985 was when I uh, uh, got hold of A Secret Wish, uh, the main album. So it threw me off a bit because I thought it was all very synth-driven and uh, very industrial by listening to Wishful Thinking. But then my mind broadened when I got The Secret Wish. But anyway, I didn't pick up A Secret Wish by that point. I picked up wishful thinking so that's my backstory for this but ever since then i've been in love with uh, the very short intense production of what was propaganda in 1980s well i think we should do a short introduction of the members of propaganda before we moving forward they are a german group they came from dusseldorf right that's right yes so you had the four main members of um uh, michael martins on percussion ralph duerpel on keyboards and two singers um, Claudia Brooken and Susan Freytag. So they were the main members of the band. Initially, the band had um, an artist called Andreas Stein. He was a formative member and he remained into the group into the sort of 1984 in the wake of the moderate chart success, UK chart success of their first single, Dr. Mabuse. But during their sort of rise, their apotheosis to success in, in Britain, he kind of left the band. And it was due to the proverbial musical differences. Um, one can speculate what they were, because I, when we go into the details about um, each individual track off A Secret Wish, but um, I, I, I certainly think he had a, a, a significant input. We're only speculating here, but I think it could have been something to do with keeping it more experimental, more industrial yeah, sounding. Definitely. Yeah, yes. Yeah, given the history of the, the band before propaganda were formed, certainly yeah. I think that's the case. And, co and coming from that city as well, uh, I mean, yes, uh, indeed. coming from yeah. Dusseldorf, there's a lot <laughs> yes, of legacy yes. in that city. So. Certainly, both in music and in visual art as well. Yeah. Um, it's a slight it's a subject for another podcast, I would say. In its Absolutely, right. we but, um, uh, do have reasons to come back to um, <laughs> Düsseldorf for sure. Yes, but just one word to start. I'd say craft work. If you imagine that, then you can add quite a lot to it. So, <laughs> if we just sort of talk about uh, Claudia and uh, Claudia Brookan and Suzanne Freytag, they're quite interesting because they were art school together. Um, Suzanne um, had an interesting career as a jeweller. 
you know, not some not something you expect from a, a pop star. But according to Claudia, she's quite a private person, a quite reserved person. And one gets that, I think, in the music itself. Um, I think you get that side. But there's another side to Suzanne as well, which is that when she lets rip, she really lets rip. Yeah. And I think we'll come back to certain tracks <laughs> where she does this. Claudia was her friend. Again, a product of art school, like so many of the best bands were products of art school. Um, Claudia's vocal style was more soulful, I would say, more more of what one would conventionally associate with a lead singer. She's got a very strong stage personality, and and in those days especially, had an extremely strong stage presence. I can remember seeing pictures of her, and when you saw her, you'd never forget her, because she, even among the singers of the period, like, um, I mean, quite, quite diverse singers, female singers of the period, like Susie and people like that, she stood out with a quite a distinct look and a quite distinct identity. And her vocal style was unmistakable. Yeah, so absolutely. It's worth, worth, worth thinking about because, of course, she went on to do other things after propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And we have reason to come back to uh, the career she had after the propaganda years. But when we talk about propaganda, we can't mention the band without mentioning the label they were on because it was quite a unique label and it was called Sang Tum Tum. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so Sang Tum Tum, it was um, established in 1983 by Paul Morley, who was an, um, journalist. a journalist at Enemy. Uh, right? provocateur. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, he was. And he formed this label called Sang Tum Tum together with uh, the producer Trevor Horn and his wife, Jill Sinclair. How did the name come about? So Sang Tum Tum is a provocative title, really, for a record label. It was certainly an adjective moniker to use for uh, a label because it was originally used in a poem by Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, who was a futurist. He wanted to describe the sounds of a machine gun. The poem, if you see it, is very actually very pictorial. There's a lot of graphic use in the poem itself. If you actually, if you just type into a website and have a look at it, it's to me, it's as if the, the shape and form of the letters are as important as the actual words. And I guess there's an, an onomatopoeic aspect to the word Zang Tum Tum because it is uh, meant to express the sound of a machine gun. I mean, this is Marinetti, and Marinetti was very is a very controversial figure even today i mean he and the other futurists loved the idea of a complete revolution of every aspect of society you know from uh, high arts of painting and sculpture right through to cooking and clothing and especially music i mean there's a number of um uh, tie-ins to futurist music with what some of the things ZTT were doing um, not just with propaganda, but with things like the art of noise as well. I'll say one word, look at the noise music of Luigi Rosolo. But I digress on this, but Marinetti loved the idea of war. He described war once as um, the world's only hygiene. So he had issues, I'd say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so big issues. Also a, a supporter of fascism in its early stages as well. So controversial as well. And... I also think just like the word Sang Tum Tum 
how we perceived it, like you said, where uh, with the machine uh, machine guns going off, we, we can we can visualize it. This, in the same way, Paul Morley obviously wanted the label to be perceived in the same way. When you saw Sanctum Tom, you know you knew you were in for something different. He wanted to create a label, uh, obviously. Um, that had an element of mystery, a big mystery, and that's why they launched Art of Noise as their first release. And um, it's just so fascinating, especially the early years, as I said. And I don't think that either Trevor Horn or Jill Sinclair had anything to say about either the name or um, how the label was going to be perceived image-wise. No, I think that leads on to... One of the remits of um, ZTT, although at the time I can remember that Trevor Horn was held up. I mean, he was the producer of the moment. I mean, he'd done a, a lot of very significant production work, but it was Morley and Morley's kind of um, literary and artistic awareness that really informed how um, the public perception of, of, of ZTT as being um, an intellectual project or having an intellectual dimension to it. Uh, an intellectual and literary aspect to it, yeah. Um, which I think, in its at the time, a lot of people labelled as being a bit pretentious. But I think, in hindsight, especially if you read back what he did or what he tried to do with the significant number of um, passages of, from literature and um, his own writings on the actual um, uh, products of ZTT. Um, he was trying, I think, get people to sort of take note of culture and become interested and engaging with a culture that maybe, you know, your average 16, 17-year-old wouldn't, wouldn't even go near unless they had a college education, you know? The first release on Sanctum Tom was in September 1983, which was Art of Noise into Battle with the Art of Noise. Yeah. That was, a, I think it was called an EP by the time. Yeah. I would call it an album. They were sort of a mystery for at least a year <laughs> or two years, I don't know. But behind the band was, of course, uh, Paul Morley, Trevor Horn, uh, Anne Dudley, JJ. Giselek. And um, Gary Langan as well. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And these uh, were, of course, very skilled musicians in their own right. And they'd done, I think it was, I think it was Giselek who was, who'd learned how to, work with the latest musical instruments and the latest electronics yeah he I was so. working a lot with the fairlight for example early yeah. sampling yeah. the reason i want to mention this first one i think they kicked off the label in the right way because the music if you ever heard the art of noise you know what i'm talking about that but that was really radical back in 1983 you can't underestimate um the the significance of sampling. I mean, sampling is an interesting subject in its own right. I mean, you could do a series of podcasts on sampling, but the idea of sampling, it's essentially a, a form of musical collage and it comes from the avant-garde, but in music, in popular music, the first person to actually attempt this, and, and he did it literally by cutting tape, was Hoja Zukai of Cannes, and he did it on his album Movies in 1979, but it came to greater attention a few years later, um, in, especially on albums like Brian Eno and David Burns' My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which in itself was a seminal album of that period. And it became a staple of a number of different musical, emergent musical genres. I mean, it came into a lot of uh, early hip hop. It came into a lot of standard pop music. I mean, the, one of the famous examples that comes to mind at the moment is um, 
the remnants of the clash who got together and did um big old world dynamite oh yeah, i love single. that band yeah there's the number there's a number of number of um samples in that and not just um if you look at the video as well a number of um visual uh, uh, video samples as well i mean you have yeah. um, a lot of stills from the man who fell to earth for example and a lot of spaghetti westerns with uh, yes, clint eastwood yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Those were an important staple of bad. But I think it's worth um, bearing in mind this idea of musical collage, that you could take these disparate things, tie them together, and create a new meaning for them. That's essentially what collage is. Yeah. You take two separate examples, tie them together, throw it out there, you create a new meaning. Yeah, I hope you're still with us. Uh, we are talking in this first episode of our podcast about uh, Propaganda, the group from uh, the 1980s and their debut album, Secret Wish. And some of you might think, um, well, they're getting off track now, but I promise you, we're not. We're not getting off track. Like I said earlier, I wanted to cover the foundations, the inner workings, if you want, uh, of uh, Sanctum Tam, this unique label, because it was truly unique. But we are now going to touch again upon propaganda and um, the first releases. And we're also going to talk about uh, some of the moralisms, uh, the liner notes that Paul Morley created for uh, each release on the Sanctum Tam. The one that I think really encapsulates our podcast here is that Paul Morley describes propaganda as aber, aber in hell. Um, I think that's a little bit, a little bit too. I mean, it's a great thing to aspire to. I think it's slightly, it's slightly raising the banner a bit too high. Propaganda. Um, I wouldn't have said we're aber in hell. I think they're closer to aber in purgatory. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> another critic did describe them as the Teutonic Bucks fizz which I don't agree with. <laughs> um, but it says a lot about how Paul Morley was thinking and how Paul Morley could encapsulate the aspirations of the band, you know, and express it in very, very succinct terms. And there was these liner notes that Morley, of course, wrote. But he also borrowed a lot of um, quotes from uh, other authors. Uh, you had Ballard in there, Camus, uh, probably Nietzsche thrown in there somewhere, who knows. Uh, but anyway, I remember reading through all these liner notes for different releases and um, I got really intrigued and, because you could see it was a quote from somewhere, but the, the, the reference was uh, usually missing. So I wrote them down, um, asked around, went to the library and they could point me in the right direction. So I picked up a lot of um, literature that I wouldn't necessarily have picked up otherwise, especially during my teenage years. You're just bringing back memories, Tobias, for me, because I think that brings a wider role for pop music. It was, it was seen as something that could, not, not educational in the, it's good for you, so don't so read it kind of a way, but educational in the, this is interesting, you're going to get something from this. If you yeah, read you, it got, you, you really it got in, yeah, you really got intrigued about it because it seemed like it was part of this artwork which was the sleeve and in turn that was part of the music that you were listening to but in reality yeah. it was works by Albert Camus or uh, whoever but it would it would it would give people who might I mean in those days not everybody went to university it's worth just in Britain I'm talking obviously not not not, not in other countries I can't speak for that but in Britain a lot of people who had inquiring minds looked to pop music 
far more than they do now for visual references, literary references, that kind of thing. A lot of that had started in the 60s. And pop music had found its voice and it's, it was constantly, there was an expanding of its vocabulary throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s. And a lot of music had clues within it. So you would have lyrics that would set you off on the path. Oh, what's that? A bit of William Burroughs there, a bit of J.G. Ballard there. Who are these guys? Exactly. I've got no formal education. I'll go out and look for them. And of course, as you said, you have to go out and look for them. Buy the book, read the book, or go and get it from a library. You couldn't just type into Wikipedia and find out who they were. It was right. a far, far more actively engaging uh, people's interests and um, imaginations and um, of course in propaganda in, in well in propaganda but in ZTT they he was consciously doing that with quotes from quite diverse sources because obviously Morley was so well read I mean the famous one was a controversial example which was the um, J.G. Ballard who was writing about the Biden-Meinhof group oh, yeah, um, right. Steve of P Machinery and that caused a lot of controversy. Maybe we'll bring that up a little bit later. Um, yeah, well, we can talk about it now because the okay, um, yeah. main, main focus is the album anyway. And we're going to talk about the singles, of course. But one of the singles that Propaganda released was, of course, like you said, Be Machinery. And the original 12-inch had this quote, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, just to sort of put it into context for people, the Bader-Meinhof were a revolutionary or would-be revolutionary um, terrorist organization in West Germany. Of course, I use the word terrorist with a certain degree of um, objectivity because that's how they were described at the time. And they were violent. So they, were, they wanted to violently change society. And in my opinion, that's obviously a terrorist, <laughs> a yeah. terrorist group. But of course, these were very, very divisive times. The 1970s, when, when, when the Baden-Meinhof were functioning, th these were very divisive times in Europe. You, anyway, you had um, various um, uh, paramilitary or revolutionary groups who were sort of left of centre of politics or the right of centre of politics, who were happy to attempt to change society by violent means. So to say terrorists um, and in West Germany these this was a majorly controversial um, point of view you know uh, a controversial issue and um, it had a lot of resonance and so much so that they had to change the sleeve design yeah. um, the sleeve notes on uh, um, especially when they released it in Germany so yeah I realized that Paul was uh, actually cared cared about music and he understood certain things about music and I thought it would be really interesting if someone like him had the power uh, to actually decide how a record was marketed and what kind of video was done for it. I, I, I thought it might, might prove interesting. I thought all kinds of crazy things might happen. He might upset all sorts of people and uh, he has. I, I invent the label in terms of like the Walt Disney fantasy of what a record label should be. Highly glamorous, uh, slightly distant, you know, slightly mysterious. Uh, Trevor makes the records, which really is the thing, and Jill uh, lubricates the, the business side of it. It's the perfect balance. We go from left to right. Paul Morley, I think he's one of those people who um, really stood out at that period in the 80s, not just in terms of ZTT, but as a, an intellectual with a, a mischievous sense of humour. He was charming yet scathing. Obviously, he was the face, the public face of ZTT. So on the one hand, you'd see him um, involved with that and you knew who he was and on the next breath 
he'd be on the late show or he'd be asked to comment on some other aspect of culture. So he was quite a prominent face in Britain, um, both as a journalist with the NME and later on as a, a TV presenter. So, but he was always willing to up his game. You know, he's always willing to throw in cultural references. When, in a sense, television at that time was going towards becoming more dumbed down and um, Morley was, um, wasn't, wasn't afraid to stand out on that. Right? Yeah. I always thought he was going for some kind of truth. He was always trying to sort of approach some kind of truth in the things he did. And he didn't suffer falls gladly. Um, and calling out people when they deserved it as well. But um, by trying to debunk the constructs of um, an increasingly complicated media, I think he kind of wanted to rip the mask away in some ways of the mechanisms at work within not just the media, but cultural, wider cultural mechanisms as well, um, and reveal them. Um, presumably one making quite a lot of money in the centre of it. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you seem to be ev everywhere during the 80s. And I also want to say, because um, I became a big Frankie Goes to Hollywood fan, but that's a subject for another podcast. Uh, but they were on Sanctum Tom as well, of course. And um, by the time when I was buying all these records by The Art of Noise, Frankie Goes to Hollywood or Antigal or Propaganda, I I didn't... I didn't know that it was Paul Morley behind this. I saw his name mentioned on the different sleeves and inner sleeves and all of that, but I didn't know who it was because growing up in Sweden, we had no connection to Paul Morley, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah. So it was uh, in later years, I would say um, late 80s, perhaps early 90s, when I became aware of Paul Morley. Well, looking back, I remember you know, a couple of friends of mine were going over to London at least twice a year, every year, uh, just to buy some clothes, uh, records, of course. And one night, this was early 90s, um, in the hotel room one night, I was, uh, on the telly, there was a program featuring Paul Morley, and he was traveling in a car. That's all I remembered. So a couple of days ago, I went back on YouTube and did a search, Paul Morley... Uh, car, motorway, and I found a program that he did that was called The Thing Is, and every single program had a different topic, so motorways was the one that I remembered, and then he had one with The Thing Is, Brian Eno, and another one that was called The Thing Is, Hotels. Now on four, Paul Morley wakes up wondering where he is. You know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, how on earth in the next 25 minutes and 50 seconds Am I going to tell you something about hotels that you don't already know? About the extraordinary patterns that you find? About the people that stay there and work there? And of course, most importantly, about me. How I feel when I arrive at a hotel, when I stay in a hotel. About how I can't wait to get to the hotel, then how I can't wait to get out of the hotel. In the next 25 minutes and a few seconds, am I really gonna be able to tell you what the thing is about hotels? You must be joking. And it makes sense that um, a guy like Paul Morley was involved with Channel 4, even if this was the early 90s, but I think they opened up, was it early 80s or mid 80s? Yeah, I mean, just to sort of um, add to that, that Channel 4, Britain's Channel 4, was, was, um, it was a new channel in 1982. So it was um, a, a relatively vibrant force during the time that, 
not just propaganda were working, but ZTT were working. And they also had um, a remit to be quite avant-garde and have quite a lot of avant-garde programming, quite left-field programming. And um, I think that that was somewhere where an artist, a person like Paul Morley would find um, a home. BBC Two and Channel Four um, yeah. was the more um, less, less populist channels, more niche channels, I suppose. But I, I yeah. think it also talks about how small our media was. We only had four channels in this country. Yeah. Um, so what you you know there were two things that happened there. First of all, there wasn't the white noise of vast amounts of information. So everybody was looking at something different. You'd focus in and see the same thing or hear the same thing or re- or going to his journalism, you'd read the same thing. So people who read the NME, people who read Melody Maker, people who read the music papers of the time, would be on the same receiving the same information on the same uh, not necessarily the same outlook because the material itself, what he wrote, would often be controversial or often be oblique. But you would have something to talk about with somebody else. You'd be able to establish different points of view. Um, It's much harder now because music journalism doesn't have the same power as it had then uh, because people can get all kinds of opinions from all sources. But then the music papers had a lot of power within the music industry itself especially in terms of rock music as opposed to pop uh, rock music was seen as the serious side of pop if you like I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm being slightly um, uh, controversial by saying that pop music until the early 80s was seen as something a little bit more fluffy and of course as the 80s emerged pop music itself became a vehicle for quite a lot of serious comments, social commentary um, and other forms of commentary. And Paul Morley was on the cusp of that. He understood the power of pop music and the power for um, changing people's outlooks or informing people. And I think that's something that um, is a distinct feature of 80s music. It, it becomes something other than just entertainment. And talking about um, magazines and uh, things informing you in the 80s, uh, growing up in Sweden, um, I didn't exactly know as a teenager what magazines to pick up because if you picked up any of the Swedish ones, uh, you get some writings about uh, big artists of the time. Like you said, a lot of rock, of course. And um, I picked up at this point by 1984, 85, uh, Smash Hits. That was my yeah. go-to source. <laughs> yeah, and, which was the uh, source of the new pop, which was this idea that pop, because Smash Hits had a remit in, within it to, of, of, of quite serious, I thought quite serious um, critique of the music. You know, it was an interesting publication for that reason. You know, it wasn't just pictures that, it wasn't just pictures that, girls could put on their walls and boys could put on their walls to idolize their pop stars it yeah. had other things going on within it it know? had yeah absolutely uh, we had an equivalent in sweden and uh, it's called okay uh, which was a teen magazine about music basically you got yeah. a poster with each number and things like that. so it's similar to smashes but the thing with smashes was that they brought up artists that haven't reached the shores of Sweden yet, so yeah, uh, yeah. and among those were some of the um, Sanctum Tam acts, of course. So that's how I yeah. came in contact with. 
propaganda, for example. That's the thing. I, I, I probably had the same magazines, actually. Uh, my sister used to get some matches and I used to read it. And I do remember them doing a, an, an article on um, propaganda. And what was interesting about Smashits is you had a lot of journalists who, who'd written for, music journalists who'd written for the big musical rock papers, like, uh, as I mentioned before, Melody Maker, NME, Sounds. Um, they started writing for Smash Hits. So you had that level of... Um, critique within smash hits but smash hits also <clears throat> was a glossy publication so you'd have nice pictures of the pop stars you'd have sort of team orientated articles you'd have single of the week um, yeah. you'd have things like i always remember having you'd have your photo of your your act you'd have yeah. a little bit of an interview or a crit critique of them um, and you'd have the lyrics so quite often publish the lyrics of the music that's right. So it was. It kind of had its feet in both camps, and I think that period that I remember it, which is the, the mid early to mid eighties, it was. Um, it had a successful formula for um, communicating um, new music, and as you said, quite, quite, I would say, left field music to um, a broader audience, and I think that was quite uh, important for the for the gradual evolution and permutation of music that might have originated in quite avant-garde circles, things like new wave and post-punk and stuff yeah. like that, through into the mainstream, which by sort of 1984, 1985, a lot of those tendencies were becoming picked up. Bands which I suppose were more middle of the road compared to the originators of these ideas. Well, how did propaganda then end up on the Sanctum Tom label? Well, the short story is a demo tape with propaganda performing a cover song of the Frob and Gristle tune Discipline ended up in the hands of a writer at the NME called Chris Bond. Sorry about the pronunciation, but I think it's Bond. And he eventually gave it to Paul Morley, who at this point was starting up the label Sanctum Tom with Trevor and Jill. And rumor has it that in Paul Morley's mind, this was the perfect act and the perfect song to kick off this new label. That's right. There's, there's, there's a YouTube footage of them playing it actually on the tube. Kind of worth checking out actually, if you, if you have a look on it. It is. It's, um, it's all there for us today. It's, it's the stuff of legends back in the 80s when you heard <laughs> something like that. With propaganda. Uh, they sent a tape to me when I was a writer of them doing, two of them doing a very strange pop version of Throbbing Gristle's Discipline. And its sense of rhythm and its, its power, uh, it reminded me that for Germans, for Europeans, uh, pop music's still quite new. You know, they haven't been diseased by its, you know, monstrosity. The third single from Sanctum Tomb, uh, or actually the second single, because the first one was an EP, as I mentioned, was propaganda's yeah. Dr. Mabuse in 1984, in early 1984. Yes, it's a much darker side, I think, um, to be heard on that track. I, I've always thought, the sa that to, me, to my ears, the sound of Dr. Mabuse is, 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 is a much darker um, version of propaganda. And I think it goes saying what we were saying before, which was that um, it suggests Andreas Thane's influence there um obviously that he was involved with the band and until just after that 
success of that single. And the, the single had moderate success. It's an interesting subject, actually, because um, the kind of Mestophelian figure um, of Dr. Mabuse is actually by a, a, a guy from Luxembourg, an author called Norbert Jack. Um, but it was popularized in the 20s um, in the films of Fritz Lang before he went to America. Um, there was Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, and the testament of Dr. Mabuse. And testament is a word worth bearing in mind because that comes up in a lot of the um, variations on the song that come through from yeah. propaganda. So I think that was probably the dominant film that was in the minds when they were in their minds when they were writing it. Um, and Mabuse, the character, was a there was a certain tendency in interwar cinema um, to, to portray kind of either evil geniuses or detectives or sort of um, uh, figures like, I can only think of Zorro is a good example. These kind of um, heroes or villains who were, were almost like they were from the stage. So yeah. you get things like Phantom Hours in France. And um, probably the one that most people might know was Fu Manchu. It was like this, all-encompassing Svengali-like evil genius in, in um, America. Um, but, um, you know, you can hear it in the lyrics. I mean, sell him your soul, sell him your soul, you know. Yeah. Uh, you see, hear this kind of, uh, this dark Mestophelian figure, you know. Exactly. And talking about the testaments that you said, it's going to come up time and time again when we see the different releases of um, Dr. Mabuse. Yeah, yeah. Actually, last year um, for um, Record Store Day, um, Sanctum Tam released uh, the eight testaments of propaganda as a box set on vinyl, oh, right. along with some rare bits and pieces from the studio. Oh, it's a great sound. I mean, there's, there's no, it's like so many records from that period. They really understood about trying to make each record as distinctive from not only other people's records, but from their own music. You know, yeah. the crime was repetition. The crime was repetition and mediocrity. People wanted to make records, or at least people who were more in the innovative side of pop music at that time, wanted to make music that stood out, had a different sound, a different feeling from other music. And I think that um, Dr. Mibuse actually does have that about it. It's a pumping bass line. And that thundery rain, that drama, the sort of epics, epic keyboards and strings to send us out. And it kind of, it, it really, really has a, 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 a dramatic dynamic quality to it. No, I, I remember hearing it on the radio and it just, oh, what's that, you know? Yeah, exactly. When you hear it, it actually stands out immediately yes. from the rest of the yeah, short toppers at that time. Yeah. And we come back to sampling once again. Uh, of course, there's a lot of sampling going on in this one as well. We got these big orchestral pieces in Dr. Mabuse, and surely they are sampled in some way or another because they run them backwards, they slow them down, speed them up a bit. And it creates this bombastic picture that only Trevor Horn could create in the studio. And it made it stand out from the rest of the songs, like we mentioned just now, uh, over time, because it leapt out of the speakers in a way that nothing else did at the time. Yes, yeah. I mean, it was, it was something that Trevor Horn was very 
noted for was expanding musical palettes and musical range on a lot of tracks that he produced. He could take quite mundane songs and turn them into, polish them up to make them real jewels that really shone out orally and on the radio or on the television. You know, I think that's a, it, it might be worth talking about um, Trevor Horn slightly separately, just talking a little bit about him. But yeah. we'll focus on Dr. Mabuse here. Absolutely. Um, um, just a, as a side note, if you want to see where all this bombast came from, you have to go back to 1982 and listen to ABC's so Look of Love, for example. Yes, yes. Um, there you will yes, have sound. yes, indeed. Um, again, that's a classic example of a, an album that, that Trevor Horn... I mean, Martin Fry from ABC is talented enough in his own right, but Trevor Horn really put the sheen on that album. Um, those tracks are still popular now. You hear them quite often now. Horn himself, of course, was part of the Buggles. And in 1979, they had a hit called, which everyone will probably remember, called Video Killed the Radio Star, which is a massive, massive hit. And that hit in itself had um, a, a video which was very popular. It's the first video ever played on um, MTV. Yeah. So yeah, Horn understood the, um, uh, the, the, the zeitgeist, as it were, as far as um, modern music was concerned. And uh, also how to turn pop music in some ways into a much more immersive experience you know you've got your tv with your video and you've got your, your speakers and your sound it was it was very much part of the way the thought about the way things were going in those days and towards a, a more um interrelated visually and musically uh, interrelated art form yeah as far as pop music was concerned trevor horn yeah we don't want to underplay him uh <laughs> at all we talked a lot about Paul Morley of course but Trevor Horn was yeah. a main driving force behind the production of course uh, in this yeah. and um, um, like I said where did that bombast come from uh, well we already mentioned ABC of course and then in a way you can look at Art of Noise productions as well with this um, stereo twirling production that they were doing with all the samplers and all that and I think all of that experience and know-how uh, led up to the production of Dr. Mabuse because all of a sudden you had something yeah. else to work with. Well I think at the time it's worth bear, worth mentioning the <clears throat> some of the musical um, or certainly in terms of music production some of the technologies that were were becoming apparent. The first was MIDI, which is MIDI technology enabled instruments to um, interconnect together to create very precise uh, production. Um, and of course, at the time, the studios were um, becoming more and more technically complicated. You had 48 tracks at ZTT's uh, studio. So you could lay down an enormous amount of things and manipulate and shape sound in a very, very precise way to get exactly the kinds of um, acoustic effects you wanted, timings you wanted, vocals you wanted. It was becoming much closer, I suppose, to how films were made. You could have lots of takes, you could yeah. mix things, you could pull th edit things. Um, it, it was, it was um, you could polish things very greatly, which has in itself, um, th there are plus and minuses for doing that. Obviously, one of the things people like in their music is spontaneity. And if you polish something too much, you remove the spontaneity. At the same time, um, to be able to produce the complicated sounds and soundscapes and 
rhythmic components that you find in a lot of uh, sophisticated rhythmic components, you did need that control. You needed to be able to manipulate sound to that level. I think that Trevor Horn actually uh, took another approach in producing as well. Uh, you can certainly hear that on uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax. And it's a single that's really minimalistic. It's not what we're used to hearing with a Trevor Horn production, if you know what I mean. And I think that uh, Paul Morley said it best in a documentary about uh, Frank Coast Hollywood that I watched a couple of years ago, where he said, relax is a record where not a lot of things are actually happening within it. But once you listen to it, you get a sense of a lot of things that have actually happened. Yeah, so I mean, do you think with Frankie Goes to Hollywood that in many ways to Trevor Horn and Paul Morley, they were a uh, blank canvas is perhaps the wrong word, but they, the music was relative, the initial music was relatively simple and given to, in the hands of um, Trevor Horn and Steve, I'm presuming Stephen Lipson. Yeah. You know, they were able to expand and push this out and do things with it. It's basically like what happened with, Dol with Dollar. More, um, Horn produced Dollar in 1982 and took some relatively mediocre, mundane songs and made them into something really, really special. You know, I, I've, songs. Absolutely, I think that's it. And the reason I was mentioning it, it was just um, on the grounds of what you were just saying. Dr. Mabuse was probably a really stripped down song, very minimal. But if you listen to what was released on that single in 1984, it's mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. It just makes me think of um, uh, what Andres Thang was doing on there. Um, and what he would have thought, it would be very interesting to know what he thought of the single. They might have had musical differences in the progress of the band, but he was obviously in the band at that point. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say his, his name again is because I think Dr. Mabuse is quite different to a lot of the other tracks on the album, On The Secret yeah. Wish. I, I, I can remember very much at the time being struck by the way the, the look of the graphics on the 12-inch version of Dr. Mavis, the look of the band. And I can remember thinking at the time, these guys are, they were obviously aligning themselves with more avant-garde tendencies within rock music, within film. They were kind of, it was like a manifesto. It was like saying, this is where we want to be. This is who we, we want to associate ourselves with. There's expressionism in there, literary elements in there. There's philosophical elements in there. We want to align our band with that. Our game's going to be played very high. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not just another band. And I actually think, even though it's 35 years ago, I think that it, it was that that really drew me to them. I was thinking... I wanted a lot more than entertainment from my music, from my music, and I, I wanted all the things we've spoken about. And so I think that was why I, I went with them because I, I'd heard Dr. Mabuse. It sounded different. It was in the charts at the same time as other different bands, such as Echo and the Bunnymen and the Smiths and people yeah. like that. It had noble aims, I think. You could tell that just from the sleeve, just from reading the information and just looking at the band. Yeah, and, 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 it, and, it, and it had an impact. And I guess it had an impact on a lot of people. We're going to move on, uh, end up in 1985, April 1985, when Propaganda released a second single called Jewel. 
And there's quite a jump in time here from the first single to a second single. And as we know, 1984 was a really busy year for Sanctum Tom. Re-released Relax to begin with, and then they had the second single, Two Tribes, which was followed up with um, The Power of Love and their double album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. So I think Frank Goes to Hollywood occupied the studio time and Trevor Horn for most of 1984. But if that wasn't the case, I think they would have liked to work more on propaganda and perhaps put out their second single and perhaps a third one before they actually released uh, the album. But they had to wait until April 1985 until the second single came out from propaganda. Yes, I suppose it gave the chance for the band to um, think about what they wanted to do to liaise with ZTT to consolidate a lot of what they were doing. Uh, and there is a distinct shift in Duel uh, by the time Duel came out. Duel, yeah. I remember at the time, was designed very much to appeal to a wider audience. I heard on the radio Dr. Mabuso maybe three times in 1984, 1985. Duel was on the radio quite a lot. G-Day's record companies will pick up on melody and in those days of course people would actually sit around listen to a single and decide whether it's going to be played on radio one or whether to invite the band on top of the pops and dual musically not lyrically was obviously designed to have that kind of hook you know because it's a beautiful melody yeah Um, and i think just kind of does give you the sense of where morley was thinking when he said abba from hell yeah, I think that's where that quote came from, around this time. Ly- yeah, lyrically, the lyrics are very dark. They're in a very dark place, the lyrics. But yeah. musically, um, you know, they played in America, played on an FM radio. I think it has a European feeling to it at its, at its root, you know, not just because of the sound of the scene, but the, the uh, arrangements as well, to me, sound more uh, European than, than American. Yeah, it but, could be. But interestingly, as far as the lyrics in Jewel are concerned, they're talking about very dark things with a very, very bright kind of happy, mel- you know, pop orientated melody. And I think it works well then, um, the quote that uh, Morley put out there once, uh, Abba in Hell, which we just talked about. And a lot of journalists picked up on this in different articles about propaganda in 1985. And... Um, because ABBA had these light and dark moments as well, but they always had the melodies to carry them through, so people didn't necessarily reflect on the lyrics. A lot of pop music has done that, either sneaking in lyrics about things that people don't really want to talk about. So, yeah. you know, there are a number of examples of that. I mean, Golden Brown by The Stranglers, which is played on Radio 2, which won yeah. an Ivan Avello Award. Um, it was about smoking <laughs> heroin. Um, you know, I don't mean to moralise here, but that, that is kind of <laughs> uh, a pretty dark subject. Um, yeah. And yet the melody sees you through, you see. So you've got these two, these two different things going on. Um, and people don't always listen to the lyrics or don't, especially if they're oblique, they don't necessarily relate to what the lyrics are about. Yeah, we have landed in May 1985 now. And Sanctum Tom decided to have a showcase at the Ambassador's Theatre in London. It was something that ran over 12 nights from late May until early June that year. And uh, they would show off different acts from Sanctum Tom. But unfortunately, the biggest one was missing. And that was, of course, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. 
they were on their world tour at that point. But we did have some interesting names. We had The Art of Noise, Propaganda, of course, uh, Anne Pigal, Andrew Poppy, and Instinct. Who were underrated acts, actually. Um, I think they, they had a lot going for them. Art of Noise, of course. Anne Pigal and Andrew Poppy, who, by even by the standards of the time, would have been regarded as fairly left field. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of mainstream pop, you know, they were regarded as, a, would have been regarded as fairly left field. And a slightly, from a record company's point of view, a bit of a gamble as to how successful they could be um, yeah. in the pop setting of 1985. And of course, Propaganda were on stage and they're joined by um, Derek Forbes from Simple Minds on bass and Steve Jansen from Japan on percussion. Again, bands that at the time were very well regarded, especially Japan, who have a posthumous and um, long-lived reputation, a lot of Japan fans out there, and an image of um, musical excellence, actually. So to get those two to um, involved with propaganda at such an early stage shows that they were aiming quite highly for being associated in the same art rock realms as those bands had been associated. Yeah, I just want to briefly mention again, uh, Instinct, um, that was an interesting act. They were meant to be released uh, on Sanctum Tom, at least have a single out, or perhaps they planned an album, I don't know. But they only ended up on uh, something called IQ6 sampled uh, from Sanctum Tom, which was a compilation of the acts that um, they showcased on uh, these nights at the Ambassador's Theatre. But most of them were actually just studio recordings and not actually recorded uh, live during those nights. And if you got the expanded or the deluxe edition of this one, which was called The Value Entertainment back in 2015, uh, you would get a, a bunch of extra track from um, this showcase, along with the DVD, uh, which was the time capsule version of the value of entertainment. So you can watch some of these bands. And on there, there are other instinct tracks as well, which is interesting. So they went into the studio at some point and recorded a lot of tracks, but uh, it never came to fruition for some reason. I actually don't know why. But it's interesting. But uh, like you mentioned before, you also had Anne Pigal and uh, Andrew Poppy. Andrew Poppy, by this point, haven't released anything on Sanctum Tom. And Pigal had released just one single. And my point is that when you think of Sanctum Tom at this point, you think of this really big independent label that had these brilliant artists. But if you really think about that, they didn't have many artists at all. I mean, the biggest one was Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and then you had The Art of Noise and Propaganda, of course. But that was it, basically, because the other artists, like you said, Anne Pigal and Andrew Poppy, they were really left field. It was really uh, not for the broader audience. Uh, it wasn't until later years when they would have acts, other acts, bigger acts like Seal. You had uh, Lisa Stansfield on there, for example. They did, they did, their roster did gradually have a number of other people. I believe that uh, Grace Jones was, with, well, he, she was on Ireland, wasn't she? For that, for that, um, yeah, and her uh, album was released through Sanctum Tum because it was... Through Sanctum Tum, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. 
yes, I mean, just, just on one of those acts, I, I have some personal um, relation to one of those acts, which is Anne Pagal, because she is still going. She's still out there. She still does soirees and releases things on a much, much smaller scale um, in Soho and her kind of the world and the kind of network that she's got. She presents art as well. I reviewed a show of hers at the um, Gagossia Gallery a few years ago. And she's quite a character. She's she's quite a, <laughs> an unusual character. Very, you know, if you, if I was to think of the word bohemian, it, she would be the first person to stand uh, to come into my mind. And um, what are your thoughts about the um, the whole showcase they had at the Ambassador Theatre? Because even if we weren't there in person, we could actually look back at it because they did release this on VHS. I think. Yes. Um, if not the same year, the year after. It's called uh, The Value of Entertainment. I, I thought that the show was successful because, partly because I'm looking at it in hindsight. And obviously when they recorded it, and when they edited it, they were thinking as a, in terms of this being a, a significant event. Even, it's the classic case, even if not many people turn up, it will still be an important event because it's asking a fundamental question. And on the footage, Morley's going around asking and questioning about the idea of what is entertainment, what's entertainment for, who's it for, you know, um, was this event entertaining? And he was asking people about it. And it's a funny piece of footage as well. I think actually uh, as, a, um, as a document, it's, a very, it's very successful in capturing that uh, whole idea of what is a gig about, um, you know, and, and who's this for? And you look at the fans and you're, if you're my age, you're looking at those fans and thinking, oh, I knew people like you, you know, yeah. what did you think of this? It wasn't very well known. I don't remember it being very well publicized. I, I mean, I, okay, I probably wouldn't have been on the, on, in the loop to know about it because I probably wasn't, wouldn't have seen the adverts for it. Um, but looking at the footage, one definitely gets the feeling that this is a, a document of a very particular period in music. And it was just at the cusp um, in 1985 when things started to cease to be about musical innovation and became far more about commercial necessity. Yeah. It, it seemed, to me, it's a really good document of that. Because then you go a few months ahead and you've got Live Aid. Yeah. And Live Aid is the big event of 1985, live event, obviously. And Live Aid started bringing bands on stage. You know, it was a far more commercial imperative. The idea that the rock music, yes, it could change things and do good things, which it did. But the music was quite, I wouldn't like to say middle of the road, but I would say it was relatively tame compared to the sort of music that, and aspirations that ZTT wanted to do, Factory wanted to do. That innovation, that sense of the importance of innovation seemed to tail off somewhere at that point. I'm not saying there weren't other bands who were doing things like who, that were of um, uh, an innovative nature, but they weren't mainstream. They weren't on a mainstream label. They were more cult bands. So you had record labels like 4AD and people like that who were doing, it carried on along that line. But in, I always perceive it, and it might just be age, that that was a period where just captured a period of innovation. But like we mentioned, we also had propaganda performing over those 12 nights. They were like the headlining band, weren't yeah. they? I mean, by that time, they were the most 
well-known band, I'd say. Certainly in terms of hype, if nothing else, they certainly had more, um, uh, there was a lot more awareness about them than the other bands. Having said that, I know you'd see articles about Anthigal. Um, I vaguely do remember an article in Smash It's about Instinct, and I, I know they had one on Andrew Poppy. Of course, you were mentioning propaganda being in the headline, of course, but the other big band on that band must have been The Art of Noise, but it turned out it was a bunch of dancers instead, because... Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's an interesting story in itself, actually, about the dancers um, and the interviews on the dancers on that um, on that particular footage, which is hilarious, I thought. But um, certainly as far as The Art of Noise, I think the art, it, it, my, my memory at the time was that The Art of Noise were like a niche, more of a niche thing than propaganda. Propaganda, because they had faces, they yeah. were, um, you know, they were seen somewhat as being um, not necessarily mainstream, but because they were seen as being a band as such. The Art of Noise, in some ways, there was a mixture of attitude to The Art of Noise. There was the, the sense of The Art of Noise being, on the one hand, to people who were more cynical, as being slightly a conceit. On the other hand, to people perhaps who I was more, my opinion was that they were uh, an interesting project. They were an interesting idea because what they were doing was demystifying the whole pop music process. Yeah. They were taking, they, they were taking this, you know, the idea of the mask and the spanner and all this kind of thing. Well, if Nick Kershaw can become a pop star and you can put his mug on everything up front, then why not a spanner? Why not a, a you know, you know, a mask or from the theater, you know, or something like that. And I, I thought it was a very interesting idea and it does, it does actually, you think it's all, oh, well, that didn't go anywhere, did it? But right. in actual fact, those ideas became very, very prominent later on when it came to DJ culture and the idea of the DJ being the center of focus in a performance, aside yeah. from the live band. Because you got this, this, this idea of anonymity, especially when Acid House came in a few years later. Yeah, you got bands, and they were, but it was, they weren't the bands of... The preceding period they didn't all have faces they didn't have interviewers asking them what their favorite colors were they mm -hmm. weren't on teenagers bedrooms walls you know the personality became removed somewhat from music it, with the art of noise it was a proposition the personality and the face could be removed the image could be removed from the band well music changes all the time of course um uh, when we were in 1985 we couldn't necessarily see it in the same way, but sitting here in 2020, looking back on it, you can see where that wave swept over the musical landscape, if you want, and uh, changed a lot of artists and they were, the way they were perceived by uh, the listeners. And I'm going to take two examples here. We have Dire Straits, who um, released Brothers in Arms in 1985, and that not radically changed their sound, but the sound was changed and it was a huge hit for them, of course. They had um, a hit single with Money for Nothing. And then on the other end of the musical spectra, uh, you had Kate Bush, who released um, The Hounds of Love later on that year. That was a new approach as well for her. I, I know she tried to um, change her sound, define her sound, in a way, on the previous album, The Dreaming, which is brilliant. And it, but it wasn't that accessible to a lot of people in the way that Hounds of Love became, because it had a couple of hit singles, uh, Cloud Bustin', Hounds of Love, of course, and then 
most crucially, running up that hill. I think actually you've just picked two very good albums with which to show the very different polarities that yeah. were going on with the music at the time. Because um, Dire Straits, a bit of um, I'll do the Dire Straits one first. I, I like Brothers in Arms as a music. I think it's a very atmospheric piece of music. But Dire Straits were more about perhaps more of the progressive kind of um, or, or, or conventional ideas about what rock music and a rock band should be. So you had virtuoso playing, you had um, relatively conventional songs. I mean, if you take their big hit, which is Money for Nothing, it was about, it, it was like they were quite old. They seemed old at the time yeah. in the Straits. It was a, it was a go, it was a kind of go back to the sort of 60s, maybe early 70s um, uh, mindset of bands and playing. Having said that, I'll just add that Mark Knopfler, as a session player, has done some great work with, I mean, people, Boys and Girls, which is the Brian Ferry album of that year. He was on that album. Fantastic player. And he's a great player. But um, I think it was more the, the way the music was perceived. It was perceived very much about this, this return to playing live, classical kind of uh, virtuoso musicianship, each band member having a, a specific role like a rock authenticity yeah even though i don't believe was. i think it, those are those are contra in my mind contradictions and terms yeah. but there was this idea of a rock authenticity um whereas now we get to kate bush you've got something very different going on although kate bush was schooled in the same kind of progressive kind of musical upbringing her brothers were musicians um she was discovered in inverted commas by dave gilmore of pink floyd signed to a major before she even released anything and she was on emi and produced a huge range of work of incredible beauty and musical inventiveness it was in some ways quite a conventional rise to get to the time when she was making the album which i considered to be her masterpiece from that period which was the dreaming which broke all the rules because she started to understand i think about the importance of the studio and how she could take control of the studio and do exactly what she wanted to do. She, could, she had a group of musicians around her, which she had for most of her early career. They were loyal to her. They understood what she was trying to do. But she makes maximum use of the studio and maximum use of new technology. And so by the time Hounds of Love comes along, she's built her own studio. She's in total contr creative control of every aspect of the music. Um, and she's got a, re a massive record company backing behind her, a cult following. She's making music with a different approach, which is basically going into the studio. A lot of that music, she wasn't going to play live. She wasn't going to promote the music playing live. She might do a few shows. She understood the power of video to promote her, her ideas. And video to Kate Bush was making the song fuse with the, the video um, so what you see on the on the screen is an expression and she understood that the performer was important within that hence the importance of dance because Kate Bush at that period dance was a, a an expressive form in its own right and she integrated that into her working and the videos that she did but she interestingly never performed live the music became to take on a very different position as something that would you could immerse yourself in because the ninth wave from House of Love, you, it was a world you could immerse yourself in. There was that mixture of influences and the way it was produced, of course, that makes it stand out. 
and yeah. storytelling, of course, like I said, both through video and her music mainly. And just to go back to Brothers in Arms, because you say it was more like a straightforward rock band, but the way it was produced, because if you think of the build-up for Money for Nothing, for example. That's true. I mean, I, I, I'm, I am giving rise to my own prejudices of the time, which is that that sounds a bit old hat to me. Having said that, I do contradict myself a bit because I thought the video, of course, everybody remembers the video. It's a bit like yeah. Peter Gabriel with Sledgehammer. Peter Gabriel had this illustrious career beforehand, but everybody remembers Sledgehammer because of the video. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what huge, I mean. That's you know, another thing that actually changed basically overnight. Well, it didn't really overnight, but it seems so at that point that all of a sudden we had this brilliant video. How did they do that? It's computer yeah. generated and yeah. all that. Um, but we won't stay too long for that. But I thought those were two really good albums on different ends of a spectrum. Uh, definitely. And as you say, exactly. The spectrum is quite important. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of albums. Prince was going at that point where yeah. the prints come from you know um and, and another album that i really remember just from that year as a big big album that was a big hit was um songs in the big chair oh, Tears Tears for Fears. Fears. yeah um because they uh, as pop craftsmen they they really could could deliver uh, you know and i do remember this those those their music from that year as being very dominant in the charts you know and yeah. it does have a distinct sound, and it does have a nostalgia value even to me now. You know? A big uh, reverbing sound from that yeah. album, which I think it was Dave Bascom who um, produced that one. Other notable albums this year is Aha, the Norwegian group who released their debut album, Hunting High and Low, which they had a lot of shot success with, uh, along with all the singles that were released from that album. And speaking of shot success, we also had Whitney Houston release a debut album this year. But we should not forget one of the best albums of the 80s, according to me, that is. And that is Scritti Politi's Cupid and Psyche. And again, an interesting case with Scritti Politi, of course, that their first records, which were done quite a while earlier, had a, an extraordinary rich literary and philosophical dimension to them. So Green Gartside could write lyrics. Um, he's incredibly intelligent, so he could write very, very literate lyrics. Yeah. Um, very ambiguous lyrics that the more you listen to the more they reveal so early scritty sounds um much more um home produced i would say I'll get, <laughs> yeah yeah no i was just going to say i think it would be interesting to have a, a completely separate podcast about scritty yes because i would yeah. like to know more because i think it's interesting what you're saying because their previous albums sounded so differently what made yeah. them who talked them into this and said you know what? You write really good songs, but we can make them into really good pop songs that's going to sell because it's like day and night, those two albums. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I, th I think as far as Scritti's concerned, I think they split up or they basically reduced down in size. And then he thought about the commercial um, imperatives. And I know he got some, you probably know more about this than I do. He got some quite hot producers, American producers to yeah. involve with the, the, the sound so he's looking for music to be quite commercial lyrically to be quite provoking provocative yeah. um and i think that's a very interesting mix because generally find that where you get tensions you get interesting things and i think there is a, is a good example the scritty sounds my ears you know 30 odd years on or whenever it is 
it sounds very distinctive. A song like um, uh, Woodbees, yeah. or Absolute, really, it's of its era, but it sounds like nothing else, even though one knows it's made for FM airplay. You know, it's made to be on MTV. Yeah. It's dressed to be in those environments. But it still sounds quite a, a distinctive, you know. It does, yeah. And the, the lyrics are still good, I have yeah. to say. I listened to it not long ago again. Um, still one of my favorites. It's got a very, yeah, like you said, very distinctive 1985 sound, very sample yeah. heavy, of course, and um, yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah, and we now have arrived to what is the anchor point in this podcast, and that is Propaganda's debut album, A Secret Wish. And it was released in July 1985. And um, my thought behind this is to go through the whole album track by track and give our thoughts about them, what we felt when we first listened to them, and what our feelings still are uh, concerning these tracks. And um, let's cut to the chase. Um, the first track, it's a brilliant opening, Dream Within a Dream. It is a really somber, but still majestic in a way, this opening track. And I remember back in 85 when I got the album, and remember, I didn't, I told you earlier on this podcast, I didn't get the album until a couple of months later. And to me, Propaganda was the hard-hitting, synth-driven sound of Dr. Mabuse and Jewel and P Machinery that was released in July as well. I got all those three singles before I listened to the album, so in my world that was propaganda. But I still thought this track was so beautiful. I remember listening to it over and over again. It was my favorite track of the album. But to me, it threw me off a bit because, wow, what are they doing? So they broadened my perspectives in a way of listening to music as well, not taking anything for granted. And I think that's what they were up to as well. We'll do this really uh, mellow opening of the album. And it's such a beautiful track. And still, to these days, it gives me goosebumps. It's a really, really nice track. It starts with the um, Edgar Allan Poe uh, poem. The beginning is all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. So it's asking a question, which is an interesting idea in itself. So it's suggesting that the music has a, a multi-dimensional aspect to it. It has many layers. Essentially, it's helping to unsettle us. It's always, for me at least, it's been the very solitary yet stately synthesized trumpet that is the major part of the melody. And that has always stuck with me. That was essentially the ear, I wouldn't say earworm, because that's a slightly different thing, but it was the, the catch for me. That drew yeah. me into the piece. And, um, you know, you do get the impression, are we dreaming, you know? And it's quite a lengthy track to start off an album with. Um, it's eight minutes long in its original conception. And I'm just going to say, as a footnote here, when they did release a CD a couple of months later, what uh, Stephen Lipson and I think Trevor Horn together sat down and said, we've got this new format, well, relatively new format, and let's do something else with it. In the true vein of Sanctum Tum, uh, they did all these remixes. I mean, you could put out two singles as a band on Sanctum Tum, but you would have 12, 12 inches <laughs> going along with that, that single. They always did all these different releases uh, uh, where 
you had relaxed with Franco Stolwood, for example, which is notorious for all the 12 inches and the remixes they did. They got quite a bit of stick for that at the time, I can remember. Um, it was the era of the 12 inch. I mean, it was the golden age of the 12 inch remix, which of course, a lot of the time were designed for dance mixes or originated in club for clubs. People would release um, versions especially so they could be played in clubs and danced to. Yeah. By the mid-80s, uh, there were a lot of bands were doing this, but ZTT took it to, uh, I wouldn't say it's logical degree, but it, it upped, upped it up, upped it quite a lot. You, you had a lot of um, bear acts doing this, and obviously, as you say, Frankie did it. Um, and there were a lot of questions people were asking, you know, well, why should I buy the, the, the this, that? <laughs> and the other one I've got this already and yeah. um, it was part of the way that music consumption it, it was it was changing during the 80s um, because the packaging of course you know you had picture discs see-through discs um, yeah. uh, various other things and I remember having a few um, of the propaganda rarities and thinking oh these are beautiful objects actually <laughs> You know, they are. They yeah. are seductive. You go in the record shop, you see them. Oh, I'm, I'm having that. You know. Absolutely. I agree with that. The design of it and the mixes were actually really good as well because yeah. I think that Trevor Horn just spent days and days and weeks and weeks uh, just doing different uh, permutations of, um, of different tracks. And um, they were saying to each other, well, they all sound good. And probably Paul Morley stepped in and said, hey, Let's release for 12 inches then. That's an interesting thought to hold, actually, for when we talk about Jewel and Jewel, yeah. because I think there's some relevance points there. Uh, I mean, absolutely. going back to um, Dream Within a Dream, what I would say is worth considering is the way that the song, as it progresses, it becomes more and more expressive. And in particular, I found that the atmospheric use of electric guitar and drums. And of course, electric guitar can mean a number of different things. By the time you get to the mid-80s, the term electric guitar has become so um, such a, a, a general term that you can have two things sounding completely different yeah. that are both called electric guitar. And in actual fact, electric guitar becomes closer to synthesizer. There's more processing and manipulation and distortion going on than in a sense, what you could do on a synth and what you can do on a guitar um, are so broad. So they kind of come close together in a strange way. If that yeah. makes sense. No, I, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, like I said, with the Dream Within a Dream, when they eventually released the CD version, they decided to um, make some of the tracks longer or different variations of them. And Dream Within a Dream is actually one minute longer on uh, the CD. It went from eight minutes to nine minutes, basically. And I think there's some differences in the intro intro of yes. uh, the song uh, it's basically the same intro but they just enhanced the percussion on one of them i That's listened back to yeah. these just a couple of days ago but um uh, i think it's on the cd version it's um the it's more distinct the percussion in the beginning in the intro uh, oh, from, right. okay. from the lp version and then they uh, prolonged um, some bits in, at the end of it but we're going to see that from other tracks on um, this album as well. Yes. I would say um, with Dream Within a Dream, one of the most notorious, uh, well, noticeable, should I say, things is that the album version, the original album version of the song, the voice and the music 
uh, in my opinion, in far better time. The version that they released further down the line, they changed the vocals where the vocals occur in the music. And I can see you can see what they're trying to do, but it doesn't work as well. It doesn't flow as well. Yeah. yeah. And now you're that, talking about um, the deluxe version that was released by right, yeah. um, Salvo slash Sanctum yeah. Tom. Yeah, it's, um, I do recommend it. To, if you haven't listened to that deluxe version, you should go out and either buy it or if you have Spotify or anything like that, you could actually listen to it there as well. Uh, so, like Gideon was mentioning, uh, you have all these alternate versions, which are actually the CD versions. And then you have the analog variations of those, which were the original vinyl. We'll then go on to the next track, which steps up the tempo a bit. It prepares us for what's to come. And that's the Murder of Love. I would say plea for mercy. <laughs> plea for mercy, that's what yeah. She sings. yeah. I always found that one aspect, perhaps um, not always commented on about propaganda, was the, um, their sense of humor. I find an enormous amount of humor in their lyrics when you when you analyze it it's very dark as well but there's also a humorous element to it um and the murder of love i mean you start with this teutonic march this regular very very regular march and it kind of these banging drums that uh, uh bring the track in um yeah. and this this kind of um, metallic bass it's very very it's a very bass driven piece isn't it and Claudia sings them in, in her German English. And sometimes I think she's pushing the Germanness of the English, if that makes yeah. sense. Because, of course, in the UK, Germany has this there's kind of a love hate relationship in the general kind of uh, zeitgeist, if you like, with Germany. And we have a lot, I mean, you know, the, the, the cliches that we have in this country about Germany are yeah. just vast. But Claudia. I find she's tapping a little bit into this because although she is German, she's singing things. I was a witness of your crime. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think thing, there's an element of humor going on in the lyrics is, is, is where I'm going with this. You know, she's singing um, uh, essentially about decaying love, you know, of love going sour, you know, the yeah. fire of love's dying down, you know, and, yet she manages to bring a certain element of humor and vulnerability into it, which I think is rather sweet, you know. <laughs> then we go into Jewel, which was the B-side of their second single, Jewel. And it's a take on Jewel, uh, sung by Suzanne Freytag this time. And... Um, or shout! I mean, she's she's yeah, really... She's shouting. <laughs> yeah, she's shouting. Uh, we'll, we'll call it singing. Uh, yeah, shouted lyrics and more industrial than Jewel could ever be. Jewel was a counterpart, of course. When they did release Jewel as a single, it had, like I said, Jewel on the B side, but they also released a second 12 inch of force. It was, it was called Bejeweled, which was yeah. a mixture of them. Yeah, and that came out on tape as well, didn't it? That Wasn't that also yeah. on a tape? It did. I mean, there's a number of things in that, um, I'd say, Tobias. And it's, it's worth... The, the, the two songs are essentially the same. It goes back to what I was just saying before, which is that the two songs are essentially variations of the same song that have been pushed in opposite directions. If Abba in Hell. Obviously talking, yeah, Abba in Hell. Um, obviously, what you've got with Jewel is the hardcore version or how 
as as hardcore as propaganda gets, essentially, in terms of music. It's very mechanical, very percussive. Sounds like a machine, you know. Um, you know, you can hear the sampling of like metals and various other things that they've used in there. It's um, ramped up to its fullest extent, I would say, as far as the machine is concerned. And it's like a prison chain through clockwork. It's very strange. And Suzanne shouts it. I mean, she's singing, but she's shouting the lyric. I mean, she's letting rip. But that's really necessary to the to the the tone of the song. You know, to the feeling of the song. Um, it's a very aggressive song and it's more high tempo as well yeah um, it's a very fast song but uh it's almost as if the band are like fighting tooth and claw in chainmail. it's a strange um song for the time because there's an element of discord about it and i can remember hearing it at the sign and um, when you, you you turn over jewel you know when you, and and listen to it it does stand out if you've not heard much industrial music and yeah. and even if you have it, it is quite unique that it's propaganda as crusaders, it sounds to me, if you can imagine. Yeah. I was just thinking, often the murder of love, they kick off with Jewel straight away instead of yeah. doing the reverse because you could start off with Jewel and ease us into this, but they are kicking off with Jewel and right after that with Jewel. So I think that's a good choice, switching things around a bit, go from purgatory to <laughs> more poppy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. As for the arrangement of the album, I mean that's in, a lot of a lot of albums do when they finish. Obviously, with a with a record, you have two sides. They will end on a single. They will sort of stick the single on the end. It's it's quite yeah. um, not not everyone obviously, but it is quite a tradition to do that. And Jewel lightens the mood anyway. I mean, it it's such a um, a melodious song, and it's so full of um, the sort of atmosphere that you get in. Uh, a lot of mid 80s pop it sits very nicely um in the same locations as as say everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears or um, uh, various other songs of that period it's melody is very kind of um affirming and emotive very much of the sort of thing that you expect to make a pop song but because we we know what the lyrics are the lyrics are dark and the music's very very friendly and melodic um, it's a little bit like, um, on a slightly different level, of course, uh, the song Oh You Pretty Things by David Bowie, in that David Bowie's singing about some pretty dark stuff on Oh You Pretty Things, and yet the music is a nice piano and very melodic, kind of very radio-friendly kind of... Uh, That's um, right, yeah. Piece. And yet he's talking about really dark things. And it's that tension that actually gives the song um, a certain degree of vitality, uh, I think. And I will also mention that both Jewel and Jewel, uh, when the CD was released, was uh, alternate versions of them. So yeah. Jewel, for example, was roughly three minutes long on the vinyl. And when they did uh, produce CD, they made it <laughs> in six minutes, just over six minutes. And Jewel, uh, roughly the same, around nearly five minutes long, but it was a different version from the vinyl as well. So they saw this potential, of course, with the CD where we can actually cram more stuff into it by actually doing extended or different versions of the songs and giving the fans something else because in that way, they have to buy both the vinyl and the CD. Yeah, yeah. Well, CDs are a bit of an investment. I mean, by 80, I mean, 85, they were coming in, but they were... um, they were still a bit of an investment. I mean, most people 
didn't have a CD player at that point. They were coming. Um, if you had hi-fi, if you're a real hi-fi buff, you might have one. But if I remember, not most people in 85, most people I knew had record players. Yeah. So you'd need a little boost to buy the CD. Of course. Um, and they were quite expensive. They, they weren't cheap. You know, they were um, a little bit more for the hi-fi buff. They weren't the generic medium that they became. No. Sort of exactly. by the late eighties, I don't remember anything else at that time. I can remember that summer quite well because um, I was listening to sort of a mixture of things, but nothing caught my ear quite to the extent of Jewel. Well, I do agree. They actually stood out from most of the things on the radio at that point. I saw something the other day that made propaganda stand out in another way. Uh, I watched a clip on YouTube of uh, propaganda and their only performance, to my knowledge, on Top of the Pops, where they were playing live. And I do air quotes when I say live, of course. It was from Top of the Pops in the beginning of June 1985, and the propaganda was uh, doing a performance of Jewel. And... I will start by saying a lot of these performances on Top of the Pops, I know it's a bit cheesy, a bit awkward, and it wasn't really live performances, were they? Not all of them, at least. But um, they were there along with, I think there were Mai Tai, Sister Sledge, and I think China Crisis was on that one as well. I could have mixed them up with another episode from June 1985. But anyway... Propaganda seemed really out of place and it had nothing to do with the rest of the acts. It was just the way we conceived them in 1985 from all the single covers and the artwork that goes with that and all the media photos that were sent out at the time. Uh, we had a certain image of propaganda. They were really stylish and things like that. You had in this particular performance... Claudia singing, of course, in a lime green dress. You had Suzanne in the background with a tambourine in a white dress. And then you had Michael on a, on a piano. And there was just the three of them just performing this. And it seems so out of place, a bit awkward watching it, actually. And I know that Sanctum Tom actually put in a lot of effort in the live performances, especially the previous year. And I'm talking about Frank Goes to Hollywood, of course, because that was uh, ace. But uh, especially for the performances, all of the performances of Relax and Two Tribes they did, uh, Sanctum Tam made sure to hand out flags. They had nice banners. Um, they made a show out of it. But uh, when it comes to propaganda, I don't know what happened if they just lost interest or they were too busy doing other things. I don't know. And I know that propaganda is going out on the world tour this same year in 1985. And the year after, in 1986, I've seen some TV performances, especially on the tube. They were brilliant. They had a backdrop. They came across as this propaganda that I wanted to see in Top of the Pops. But something weird happened in the summer of 1985 because I've seen other live performances from propaganda at this time. And yeah. Claudia has the same lime green dress and they just come across a bit bland, to be honest. So I don't know what happened. They probably had a chat with the Sanctum Tam or Sanctum Tam saw the performances at some point. I don't know. It's just a rant of mine. It's something that I need to get out of the system. I, I would say, just out of interest, you mentioned Top of the Pops because Top of the Pops is, uh, for people who don't know it, it was um, essentially the premier mainstream chart show from mid-60s right through to 
the 2000s um it's it's count it's gone now but what top of the pops um was very very conservative on who they'd have on they used to have a panel of people who would check who they were going to have on um there was quite a a, a desire from for a and r people to get their acts on because obviously you got national coverage and of course the great thing a bit like we were saying about the music papers if you did get into those you got a huge audience potentially because people you know your mum your dad your sister you would sit down and watch the telly and we'd all be watching top of the pops all taking this in all have an opinion on the different acts by the mid 80s top of the pops had got quite staid and quite conservative, but it did still have an enormous share of the television audience on a Thursday evening. You had other shows like The Tube, and you had shows like The Old Grey Whistle Test and The Oxford Road Show, which I think by that point had finished, that were more niche. You you would watch those on your own, but the whole family would watch Top of the Pops. And, um, you know, propaganda being on there is an interesting thought, because propaganda had quite a contrary image to the kind of bands that you tended to get on there, certainly by 85, who yeah. were perhaps a little bit more middle of the road. But bands have always had to decide whether they're going to do Top of the Pops. A lot of bands, more inventive, introspective bands, wouldn't do it and made a deliberate choice not to do it. So one of the things about that was that that's a good idea to have a video because then you, if you didn't want to do it, you kept your mystique. Because when you go on top of the pops, you're giving quite a lot away anyway. Yeah, uh, as an artist, New Order were famous about not doing interviews, but eventually they did Top of the Pops, and when they did it with Blue Monday, because it was a massive hit, they they did it live. Because the other thing insisted on doing it live, and it live is that bands didn't do live performance on top of the pops it was it was tapes the tapes of their song they just go on and they mime and a lot of bands took the mick out of that i mean famously cut in a few cases yeah but um with propaganda on there they would have been on the same bill as some very sort of um jolly sparkly pop stars with you know uh, mullets and t-shirts and so whereas propaganda were quite dark you know and quite stylish and quite consciously european rather than american influenced so they would stood stood out very much on there you know yeah and that's what i mean when i saw um, this episode and um they stood out in a good way of course because the music was so different and you're like you would look up and see what is this if you haven't heard it before um but at the same time they seem so out of place because of the reasons you were just mentioning, because on that show there was Mai Tai and uh, China Crisis. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah. It was, I uh, mean, China Crisis is interesting you mentioned because they started off as being a little bit more synth poppy, a bit more avant garde, yeah. and they kind of became more middle of the road. Like a lot of bands, the commercial necessities kicked in, and they, they would, if they didn't have a chart hit, they would lose their. Um, deal eventually or something like that things you know basically bands had to be much more conforming china crisis is a pretty good example but then i would say you can see that in a lot of 80s bands it started during the new wave era they started out with the intentions of being a bit more experimental a bit more avant-garde and gradually they had to come to a sort of a uh, arrangement with their record company produce chart-friendly tracks that that were going to be hits and interestingly propaganda came up 
I would say, or certainly came into the public consciousness in the UK at a time when this tendency was in full, full throttle. Yeah. Because pr- prior to that, you did have quite a lot talking, you know, as a, in, a, in a broader context. Just with that time, you did have a bit of a golden age of pop. And there were yes. a lot of quite interesting, quirky bands. And they did get on top of the pops. But by 85, that was certainly the, the, the parabola had been reached and you were going down the other side. It was going back towards a more consumer orientated conservative yeah, and that's why I was mentioning it, because we were talking about earlier in this podcast about the music that came out that year, some of the, some of the music. Yeah. And yeah, I have to agree, looking back at that clip as well from um, Top of the Pops, of course, there was a lot of good music around still. I wouldn't say it declined completely. It's... Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was such good, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it was so different, and I was a bit disappointed by Sanctum Tum as well because I know they spend a lot of time uh, with Frankie's performances on uh, top of the pops. It's it's an interesting point, Tobias. I hadn't thought of that before because my view would be it would there would be a number of things that work there in a lot of tracks that were recorded during and up to that period. They required quite a lot of processing, quite a lot of manipulation. With Top of the Pops, they were always very conservative about how you could be filmed and you didn't have much say on how you looked. So I'd be interested to know what the producers of Top of the Pops were trying to do and what they'd said to them, what you can do, and how far they went along with that. You know, a lot of bands were put off precisely because they didn't want to have, didn't want to be manipulated in this way, but it's the classic uh, sort of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because <laughs> if you don't, you're not going to get the air exposure that you need to get the single into the no, charts true. or get it higher up the charts. I mean, my favourite one actually is Magazine, who were uh, Howard Devoto. And Howard Devoto had such an odd, strange image that he actually went on top of the pots with a, one of his songs for Magazine that shot from both sides. This is back in 1978. And his appearance was so bizarre that the song actually went down the charts the next week, <laughs> which is a lovely, a lovely accolade actually to say yeah. I might single. I, I look so strange, but when I went on top of the pops, the single went down. <laughs> you know, um, even and that was in an era of punk and, and, and a lot of oddities. You know, um, and a lot of pluralism in music. You know, so yeah. it must have looked very strange. I have seen the footage; it does look strange. This is the thing with, with, with that period, you know, it was very much a compromise between commercial imperatives on the one hand, you, you, your record company saying, you've got to do this, you're on contract to do this, you've got to stay with us and play the game. And on the other hand, being creative, of which the studios, that the money that the record companies are putting into the studios, were actually offering you all these chances to experiment. So artists were torn. Well, um, this uh, performance on the top of the pops by Propaganda didn't do them any good when it came to short positions because on that very same program they had a short countdown of course and they were in a short position number 21 that week and I believe that was the highest position they ever got to in the UK with Jewel. I think they expected more I think that the the, the expectation was that they were going to get higher than that yeah Jewel. Um, and they should simply, have looking they back should at have it. Done. Yeah. 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 But I'm it's, partial, and, but... Yeah, I, I know. But it, even even so, and it's an interesting point with Jewel and Jewel, that a lot of that those tracks 
subsequently turned up on TV shows and various other things. That's the true. song was a success. It just wasn't a success in the terms that ZTT probably expected it to be. I mean, that was the year of um, people like Bruce Springsteen were making a huge impression. You know, I mean, these, it, was, it was a very different take away from the Europeanism that had dominated music since the late 70s. Yeah, we come to the next track on this album, which is P Machinery. And it also became the third single released in July, the same month as this album came out. And I was actually really surprised when I looked back on the chart positions for this one. Here in the UK, for example, I think it peaked at number 54 or something like that. Uh, it did a bit better out in Europe. Uh, I know that Germany, I think it peaked at number 25. I absolutely think this should have been the hit for this album. I mean, who can resist that melody hook? First, the point that you just made about its performance, it should have done better. Again, I think the reason it didn't was because it comes back to what I was saying about uh, Jewel and Jewel, which is that the musical zeitgeist, if you like, had changed and shifted in, in, in Britain towards more conservative or certainly, certainly more American orientated music. And so it doesn't surprise me that it's not added to the fact they're German. It doesn't surprise me that they did better in Germany or in Europe generally because it's a very European sounding, it has a great deal of Europeanism in it. And I think that that's quite a, an important point in working out why it hadn't made such a success or why it didn't make such a success. Maybe as well, because there were probably a, a relatively small hardcore number of fans, they'd have probably bought the album, had the track on the album. So there's, there's that to be said. As for um, the, the uh, song itself, Yes, David Sylvian was involved. Um, he'd been asked initially to produce Propaganda. Um, yeah. Being David Sylvian and being kind of... His personality is quite complicated. He, didn't, he, he wasn't the sort of person just to take on a job just to get extra brownie points, to get more notoriety, to get mentions in the press. He would have taken it on because he liked the music, but he would have chosen his role. He's never, as far as I know, produced another artist's album. Other members of Japan have. Um, and they tend to have been quite left field acts. Uh, Richard Barbieri, who was the keyboard player in Japan, produced a, an Icelandic group called Lustens Lakture in 1982. That was Some actually a open. Swedish group. Oh, was it? Yeah, they were. I listened a lot to this album uh, in my teenage years. It's still a great album. And uh, the group, as I said, is called Lustens Lakeo. And uh, when they released the English version of that album that Richard uh, produced, uh, they renamed themselves to Vanity Fair, and the album's called A Place in the Sun. And uh, except for Richard, uh, actually, they had Mick Khan on uh, saxophone on two of the tracks. Ah, right, okay, right. Yeah. I learn something every day. It's carried that thought with me for 35 years. With regards to David Sylvian, yeah, he, he did, he was involved with propaganda, and you can hear touches. Well, I think, as, as a Sylvian fan, you can hear touches on the album. But the track he's most involved with was P Machinery, and he was played the, um, the high line on P Machinery. He was involved with that. But he was also, at the time, making his own extension of his 1984 album, Brilliant Trees, which was called Words with a Shaman, which is about, although it's still considered to be pop music, is about as, just about as far away from conventional pop music as you can imagine <laughs> um, if you get a chance it's definitely worth a listen if you want an adventure 
listen to that because it's it's a majestic piece but that came out the same year but he he was working on that so he was kind of involved but he didn't um get as involved as i think that the the band would have liked a band like propaganda would have been very aware of japan and japan's musical legacy because they split up in 82 i wouldn't like to say they were influenced by them but they certainly would have known about them and had an opinion on them of course it's the it's the actual source of this secret wish the lyric lyrically you talk about the term a secret wish is actually mentioned in the lyrics so it's actually quite an important song as far as the album's concerned and it's it's a dystopian song and, and it has lyrically i think it has some relevance you know it's talking about the way the machine is controlling our lives is controlling our our thoughts it's controlling yeah. our destiny and i think that has some relevance today um if, if one considers um the way you know the orwellian aspects of um the media today the way that uh, you know the media can make us think in ways that um we might not otherwise do I think there's an element of that in there. Plus the Metropolis associations, of course. Yeah, of course. Fritz Lang, Metropolis. They were very fond of Fritz Lang. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, with B Machinery, uh, like we said, was the third single as well. And uh, they released a couple of uh, 12 inches from that one as well. They're all brilliant. But what I thought was really interesting with the P Machinery single is the B-side, Frozen Faces. Yeah. So if we're just going to do a jump to the CD, like we did on the other tracks, um, P Machinery itself was a bit different on the CD. The length was roughly the same, but uh, it was an alternate version of that one. But what they did do on the CD, they included an extra track. So after Jewel, instead of listening to P Machinery straight away, they go straight into Frozen Faces and then go into P Machinery after that. I think the word I'd associate with Frozen Faces is, is alienation. It's very alienated and very precise dance music. It's very clockwork almost, I yeah. find. Um, and, it, and it starts out brilliantly with all these whispers. Yeah, know. yeah. So yeah. It's a feature of propaganda, the whispers, I think. I'm trying to think of other bands who've really done that to that within the same kind of music i mean there's a lot of bands who who whisper on their tracks but i can't think they've done it quite the same anybody's quite done it quite the same way as propaganda um it's a very clever um use of the technology to kind of connect collect all those sounds and then bring them all together and create something that actually works in time with the music i know that the the vocals are in English and German. I mean, that, that's the other thing. By singing in a second language, you add a certain mystique to it. Especially if you actually, if you can't speak the language, if you don't know what the person's saying, you're more likely to think on that. It's more likely to, to resonate with you, and maybe you you kind of want to know what what it means. The ambiguity of not knowing what it means actually adds to the mystery of the song. I think, or certainly did for me. I'd just say that towards the end, it, it takes a more, in my, my, to my ears, takes a more reflective direction. And it fragments. I like the way it fragments at the end, actually. It breaks, kind of breaks down at the end. But it's a very clever track. I thought when I heard it first, that it was almost the best example of how they've taken that technology and pushed that technology the sampling that they've done that they've pushed that technology right to the um to a very high standard 
Okay, then we have the next track. We are actually on the B side now. I forgot to mention that one. So if you're following on the vinyl side of things, B Machinery actually opens up the B side. But after yeah. that one, we have Sorry for Laughing, and that's the first cover that we're going to hear. And I had no clue that this was a cover by the time, and it's something that I realized just years and years later. This is covered by Joseph Kay, who were a Scottish new wave band. A great song. The original really song great. is... A cl- is a classic song if you get the chance it's on youtube to listen to it's 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 worth listening and in fact joseph k <clears throat> is a slight digression of one of those bands who are definitely worth or deserve a reappraisal because they they came along at a time when there were a number of other very successful and very interesting bands and they got overshadowed um they were one of the postcard bands who were postcards record label in um scotland uh, the other bands, the most famous of which would probably be Orange Juice. We also had people like Altered Images, and they all had really big hits. They all became relatively successful, but Joseph K sort of faded away, really. But if you listen to the musicianship on this track, on the original version, it is really brilliant and a very different sounding track and has a very different feel to it than the one Propaganda gave it. And that's, I think, the mark of a good cover version, which is that if you are going to cover something, you do something different with it. You don't just do it for the sake of it. Um, I think it was Paul Morley who was a big fan of um, Joseph Kay, and he thought, yeah, oh, it was. what do you think of doing this? So you listen to the lyrics, and the lyrics tend to, you think, where? I mean, my thought is, where's this come from, lyrically? Yeah. Until I realized that it was actually a cover version of another song because I didn't straight away I, I assumed probably like yourself that it was propaganda's own material until I you know when you put the album on but you realize that the lyrics are quite strange um, yeah. they're quite oblique lyrics they're quite 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 mischievous lyrics um, and it, although propaganda have an element of that within them this was a di- this this felt differently lyrically musically the music that they make on their version of the song um, fits in very nicely with the kind of music that they have on uh, A Secret Wish overall. And there is a common set of sounds that you can hear on there. But Claudia sings it really well and um, she again, does. gives it a, a, funny, a, a slightly humorous element, I think. Yeah. I wonder if it could have been a, hit, if, a, a single if they'd have released it, if it would have done anything. Because it, it does, if you listen to either version, they do stand together as singles, I think. The chorus is very, is a very hook-like chorus. You know, you do you walk away humming a song like that, I find. Yeah, I agree. This one should have been released as a single for sure. Uh, but an interesting thing is, if you listen to the deluxe version um, of uh, A Secret Wish that were released in 2010, on the second disc of that one, you have a version of Sorry for Laughing called Unpologetic 12, which is a great uh, remix of this one. And rumor has it, it was either made for the Wishful Thinking remix album that we're going to talk about a bit later, and or it was meant as an exclusive 12-inch for the American market. Anyhow, it's a great mix of Sorry for Laughing. Uh, yeah, I like laughing. that. That's, that's great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the actual laughing, I really love on that one. Yeah. The, the laughing is great. You know, she's trying, you know, they've obviously tried to get, laugh, Claudia, <laughs> laugh, you know. Yeah. But, you know, 
or Suzanne. I can't remember. Actually, I can't tell who the laugh is. No. I think it might even be Suzanne, actually. Yeah. But so have a, you know, just laugh, we'll record you, you know. And I thought it was really good. It really gives the, the piece a slightly different feeling, actually. It probably wouldn't have been, if it, if it had been released, it probably wouldn't have been top 20. But it would certainly, I think, would have held its own in the charts at that time. Again, for the same reasons that I've previously mentioned, it might have done something in America. It might have got into a John Hughes film. It might have, you know, there are a number of ways it could have gone. As for propaganda, you could see it as a single, it might have worked in that context. Um, but I don't think it would have done massively, basically. No. It wouldn't that's... have been... Don't you forget about me as in terms of success. You know, <laughs> no, so. I don't think so. But it could have been another single for them, at least from the album. So, And before we move on from Sorry for Laughing, I just want to say this wasn't the first time that Propaganda actually made a cover. Uh, they had made a cover for the 12-inch of Dr. Mabuse, uh, Femme Fatale. Yes, yes. You know something, I'll tell you about that, because I had that, and I remember listening to it, and it was the first time I, because I didn't know about the Velvets then, I was quite young when I listened to it, it was a few years later that I discovered the Velvets, because the Velvets are one of my favourite bands, I heard that version, and it is quite striking listening to it, because if you didn't know the original Velvet song, it's quite surprising, Yeah, because it sounds... It, 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 to my, to my ears, it sounded very much a vignette of um, coming from a completely different place. It was like a little little porthole you were looking at. I, 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 I won't go too much into that. It's a bit hard to define. But um, musically, it's quite, it's quite um, I think it's quite a cold track. But you still get that sense of the vocal. The vocals are quite clipped, but then so are the Nico vocals on the Velvet's original recording. Yeah, of um, femme fatale, but the music itself is a little more lyrical. The, the music femme fatale is quite clipped. It's quite precise on the on the on the original version. You know, it's a very there's, there's a definite sense of um, exact tempo on the original one, whereas this one's a little bit more confessional. I, I think it's such a perfect track for propaganda, basically, just like, like Sorry for Laughing, uh, because it sounds like propaganda would have made that track. And by the time yeah. I bought the um, 12-inch Dr. Mabusa, I, I thought it was a propaganda track, actually. So, oh, But yeah. just shortly after that, I had a friend of mine who said, that's actually um, that was a track. So, okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's, as I say, I just see it very much as a vignette like a little a fragment of, of a different set of experiences. Because you kind of get with Claudia and Suzanne, especially Claudia, that there's an element of the confessional. There's a very, von, there's a very rather charming vulnerability to her vocal. And every yeah. time she sings, I always get that sense that it's like a confession. I, I don't know what's in her head when she was singing, but <laughs> one gets that. It's a very, it's a very um, emotion, you know, it's a very vulnerable voice, I find. Whereas with the Nico, I mean, Nico was notoriously, I mean, I love Nico anyway, but she was um, from Velvets, uh, Underground and Nico. She was, um, you know, she was singing Lou's lyric. I think it, I am pretty, I can't remember the top of my hand. And she was a chanteuse, she was, she was a, a chanteuse, you know, she was there to sing. Yeah. She hadn't written those songs. But you get perhaps less of the Ice Queen, which you get with Nico, more of the warmer, vulnerable side on, on Claudia. Okay, so on the original listing from the vinyl, uh, we have the next track, which is Dr. Mabuse. And the only yes. one produced by Trevor Horn on this album. Yes. So yeah. He used um, the first life uh, cut, 
which they called it yes. uh, on the original album. Dr. Mabusi was a, <clears throat> a character, a Mephistophelian kind of character uh, of the sort that um, Fu Manchu, probably the most well-known in the West, and um, a dark character, kind of, you know, Svengali-like character. And was a popular figure in films in the interwar period in Germany. I mean, there were two Fritz Lang films that were made about Dr. Mabuse. Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler, 1922. And then The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Wasn't there a third one? uh, Yes, there was one after the war, actually, that was made. But I think that the way the propaganda were looking at, my feeling was that they were were looking to this very, very um, Weimar era sort of, Expressionist Germany. Absolutely. Trying to sort of relate the thing to. As a single, it stood out very much. I remember when it was released, it stood its own against some serious competitors. I remember it was in the charts around about the same time as Silver by Echo and the Bunnymen, which is a classic track in its own right. And it stood out as sounding different, distinct from the other tracks. It didn't do, uh, it, it did respectably, basically, in the charts. And it has, you know, this great rant lyric, you know, sell him your soul, you know. <laughs> and I think it sort of posits the question of how much of an influence Andreas Thane, who was an artist who was a member of Propaganda at that time, had on the band. I think that Dr. Mabuse has a quite different feel from the other songs on the album. And I think that is probably down to the influence of Andreas Thane and his artistic avant-garde ideas that I think were in the band at that time. And you can see elements of the song Discipline by Throbbing Gristle. You can see that that darkness was being pushed into the the music, I think. Just imagine this. Propaganda went into the studio. They sat down with Steve Lipson and they said, listen, you know that Trevor Horn produced track, Dr. Mabuse? We... We don't want to use that one on the album. We actually want to use uh, the same track, but it should be produced by you. That would be really interesting. Would it sound not radically different, but would it be more in line with the rest of the tracks on the album? Or would it be really close to what Trevor did in the first place? Because um, I know Libson and uh, uh, Trevor Horn, they work closely together. I don't know. It's just um, something to play around with a bit. Yeah, it would, just to see how much, how different Trevor Horn produces. Because I think Trevor Horn added the drama to it. I I really do. You know, uh, you can tell from his previous productions how much, there's a very dramatic, um, intense, emotional element to it, which I found. And maybe that, I think that's probably one of the other reasons why it stands out within the um, Stephen Lipson produced secret wish and it's interesting how on the version one version starts and that's the last track on the album but it segues into the last word strength to dream yeah it does you have that and that's the difference i'm just going to say that on the original album this track was roughly around five minutes long and on the cd you got a different version which was nine minutes long just over nine minutes long and it's segue just like you said into the strength of uh, strength to dream track that was uh, end track on the original album and it's a nice it's a nice finale both of those variations it's yeah. a nice finale you have this kind of question at the end and we begin with the words that we started is all that we see or seem 
but a dream within a dream. We kind of end back at the beginning. And in fact, if you listen to it on a loop, which I've done, it kind of goes back into the dream within a dream again. It kind of, it goes very nicely back into uh, into the album. So you could in a sense listen to the album as a cycle and just go round and round and round. But uh, but yes, it's, it, it's baseline as well, I think is worth um, mentioning, especially towards the end. The baseline gets really pumped up and you've got this thunder and rain in the background and these very dramatic keyboards and strings really taking you to this crescendo, you know, yeah. musically. And that's why I think it works better on the CD version uh, than the original album version, because you got yes, an even longer version, of course, of Dr. Mabuse, but they change places with that one and um, the track that we're going to come to in a bit. Um, but anyway, it ended the album in such a, a magnificent way. And like you said, you can easily segue into the beginning again and listen all over again. It takes us on a journey. The journey hasn't ended, in a way. Yes, yeah. We're just starting again. The next track on this album is The Chase. And this track, along with Dream Within a Dream, were my two favorite tracks when I bought it in 1985. And they still are. Uh, the Chase is just a fantastic production. I'm still blown away when I listen to it today because it starts out with the chorus. That's how it kicks off. And the stereo picture is really wide, really, really wide. It fills the room. And once it goes into the verse, it's just like they narrow everything down and you're in a padded room with Claudia singing this. And there's no reflections. There's nothing uh, reverberating or echoing. It's just this clean, really narrow sound. Such a fantastic track. And once it's open up again in... The chorus, of course, so you got this big, uh, wide stereo picture again. I can just imagine some of the listeners going back to listen to this track now, The Chase, after my declaration of love and passion for the song and its production. And they'd be like, yeah, eh, it wasn't that dramatic and it wasn't that intense. Well, I still stand by my word. I think it's a fantastic track. The production is outstanding on this. Yeah, I, I must say I was drawn to it when I first heard it. It starts off quite discordant, I think. But I, I like that. I like that element. It, it, it starts off with quite discordant notes. Again, she's chasing after passing visions, which is the lyrics. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like that all, all is folly, yet all will be overcome kind of thing, um, which I, I, I really liked. I, I was drawn to that. And it was the thing that really drew me to that track <coughs> was the uh, synths, the melody of the synths, which is kind of, I think it's a fair light. And I think that it's the same fair light that was used on sounds, that was used on Moments in Love by The Art of Noise. Um, it's that very similar kind of sound. It's like a very reductive sound and you'll know it if you hear it. But it's hard to describe. <laughs> so you, you mean that they use the same sample on that Fairlight? That yeah, the same, like the same, the same sound. Yeah, the same, the same, the same particular sound. It's very distinctive, and it's the sound that I would associate with ZTT or and with that period probably more than any other. Um, it's a shame we can't sample it and play it because you can, you yeah. know the one I meant. That's um, one of the drawbacks with doing a podcast like this, talking about yeah. music, because that's all we can do. We can yeah. just talk about it because we are not even allowed to do one second of a song. 
not no. even that. It's a lot of musical contrast in the song anyway. I mean, it's lush, it's, it's ex expansive, atmospheric with the synths. And it's got a lovely piano, actually. Yeah, a lovely piano, yes, yeah. dramatic piano in it. I mean, the, the one thing that you don't want to be doing is just basically sitting there and pressing buttons using the presets. I mean, presets on a, a synthesizer, <clears throat> yes, you can do things with them if you're the first to do them, but after a while, it becomes shorthand. Having a, um, a sampling machine means that you can take a sound and you can construct a harmonic scale with it and you can play it and do new interesting things with it. Yeah, um, but you should never rely, you know, never rely on your presets. Always start from something uh, from a different position. And that's why I think uh, Sanctum Tom had that unique sound for most of the artists as well, because they did have people in the background working on the music and the programming of the machines that were really yeah, passionate about this. So they didn't want to use the presets they, like we heard on so many other records from other companies. So uh, they actually cared about the sound. And I know that Trevor Horn wouldn't release anything on his label that he didn't thought sounded really well and unique. So, well, he he does come from that progressive background of of technical of perfection, you know, of virtuosity, um, and he could he could deliver the, you know, musically the important things. Yeah. In, in effect, so you you might have somebody come in and say, "Oh, this is great. <clears throat> we can do something with this," but Absolutely. he would bring it back. I'm guessing he'd bring it back down to earth. That's the role of the producer. Let's 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 do something here that we can realistically do, but take but but explore those ideas to the fullest, you know. And with this one, the chase, once again, going back to the deluxe version that was released by Salvo, and there is actually another version of that one, which is called the Good Night Mix. And I think that came out of a sessions from um, what we're gonna talk about shortly after this. Um the wishful thinking sessions that was done in the studio. Yeah. I call them sessions, but they were actually mixes. Actually, when I think about it, there was another version of the chase released uh, back uh, when they released Jewel as a single, uh, because Sanctum Tom had this reputation of releasing a lot of different formats, as we talked about before, uh, two, three, four, 12 inches and so forth and so on for different artists with jewel they released a double seven inch with a beautiful gatefold uh, sleeve as well and on the second disc of that one you had a track called lied which is actually the chase a shorter version of a chase a really good version and on the flip side of that one you had a track called the lesson and that was actually dr mabusa so there we go there was another version of the chase officially released. The last track on the original album was funnily enough called The Last Word slash Strength to the Dream. And yeah. it ran for three minutes. And on the CD, it was edited down to one minute and 12 seconds exactly. <laughs> and that was because, like we mentioned before, when they released the CD, they changed places. So on the original album, you had Sorry for Laughing, Dr. Mabuse, The Chase, and then The Last Word. 
but they switched places. So the chase came after Sorry for Laughing, and then you had Dr. Mabuse segueing into what we already mentioned, Strength of Dream. So that's why it was a bit shorter. It, was, it sounds like one track, and I think it's meant to be one track, but it's actually two tracks merged together. And it yeah. wasn't just, um, as we mentioned before, about having the, the Edgar Allan Poe is all that we see or seen, but, uh, but a dream within a dream. It was also within the music itself that it was doing that. It was, and it was incredibly filmic. That's what I remember mostly about it. It yeah. was incredibly filmic piece. It, it, it sounded like it should be in a soundtrack at a very crucial point in a movie, you know? Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about... Um... A Secret Wish before we go into uh, the next album. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, to be honest. No, um, me neither. I think we covered most of the things. Yeah. Our, our views on the different tracks, of course. So Yeah. yeah. So we're going to move on now to early November 1985, when the next album was actually released by Propaganda, and that was remix slash rework album, Robert Krauscher which was the engineer on A Secret Wish, uh, sat down with Paul Morley and went through all the original material that was produced by Lipson and Horn, of course, and did them into a bunch of, well, I would call them remix tracks. Yeah, it was basically um, uh, wishful thinking. They were scribes being disturbed dances, all one word. Which is a load. Which is a very Paul Morley thing, I think. A very a term, very very Paul Morley uh, sounding. Are they disturbing? I, I I wouldn't describe them as disturbing personally. Not in the sense that I I I would what I would expect to be disturbed. But that doesn't really matter. They are oblique kind of takes on a lot of the tracks from the original Secret Wish album. Yeah. And I think it brings us very much into to talk about the period again, about how music was being consumed. Because the remix album, in the same way that 12 Inches were extended versions of the single mixes that were released in the 80s, generally geared towards clubs and people who wanted to dance, the remix album um, had a, had a, a, another sort of application, which was that you could take an original album and do something creative with the essence of the album and turn it into another product. The one that I relate to more than other isn't a remix album in the conventional sense, and it certainly wasn't called that. But it was when David Sylvian released Brilliant Trees in 1984. A year later, he took the same, generally the same set of musicians, a few variations, and took the themes from, some of the themes from Brilliant Trees, and extended and explored those themes, and made an EP release an EP. In fact, that was what he was preoccupied with um, when he was asked to be involved with propaganda, if my memory serves me right. So the idea that you could take an existing album and then explore these different aspects of it to produce another album could again be done for two different reasons, which is you could have one which is basically remixes for remixes sake. So you can just basically make another an album that will hopefully be a commercial or a dance orientated uh, success or you could say I'd like to do this as purely as an artistic experiment and that's what Words with the Shaman was for David Sylvian. Propaganda's wishful thinking I think there's an element of both in there there's an element within the different tracks that they could be used in some dance floor context they could be segued in between other tracks or something like that 
they could be used as as pauses within a DJ set or something like that. And then you've got the other side where they're more oblique and the music's going in sort of different directions between each track, by which I mean that each track is like a vignette. It's like a little window on the tracks that we had on A Secret Wish, like almost as if those tracks were existing in an alternate universe. You know, what would those tracks sound like if we do this? What would those sounds if, if we take that little bit and extend that piece? Yeah, and I think that was exactly what Paul Morley was after as well, because I read somewhere that he always saw these two sides of propaganda. There was that propaganda that he received on the demo tape initially in 1983. And um, there was this propaganda that was beautifully produced by both Trevor Horn and uh, Lipson in the studio. But to contrast what was produced in the studio when they were making the album, he wanted to make this as more, this is how I see propaganda. They could be this as well. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast. This was the first album that I picked up with propaganda because somehow when I saw this album in the shop, I was like, oh, this is the album they released. So in my mind, I thought it was the actual album so listening to this at first and then realized uh, sometime later that oh no this is not the main album the main album is called a secret wish so i went out and bought that one and those they are so contrasting because i remember listening to this wishful thinking at first and i was like well they are really experimental and of course i already heard b machinery and jewel and dr mabuse before that i was like oh there's really interesting takes on these so this is actual album but it wasn't but um i think what you were saying about alternative universes this is it this is uh, paul morley's vision of uh, propaganda what they could have been i i approached it from a slightly different point because i do remember going out and buying um, because I'd had a secret wish, going out and buying um, Wishful Thinking. And to be fair, I hadn't thought about it for years. <clears throat> it was only coming up to doing this podcast that I actually re- was reminded of it. And there were a couple of things that struck me about it. It was how uh, the actual album itself, how well uh, made it was. You know, you had a lot of information for, for essentially five remixes and all the different verbiage on there and the cover art. I really have a very strong recollection of the cover art and how I felt, you know, about the cover art, which I responded to, which was Claudia. And it was, I like the way that they took the bodice that is on the cover of um, A Secret Wish yeah, and re kind of interpreted that on the cover of uh, Wishful Thinking album. It was like it's almost a piece of stained glass. That's what I. Yeah, it's it a bit distorted. Yeah, stained glass yeah. effect. Yeah. Or computer generated. Although I think it's a painting by Claudia. I read somewhere. Oh, okay. um, but it was a, yeah. it really expre- It was a really. Um, uh, I, I really warm warm to that visually, and musically, listening to it, I like the way. I thought that it was a very inventive album. It was obviously. Um, creating different atmospheres and different variants on the tracks on the Secret Wish, but they were very distinctive. They hadn't done what a lot of remix albums do, which is basically just extend the track. They've taken the track and done something interesting with it, even if it wasn't going to get it on the dance floor. They'd done things that were going to be an interesting um, in their own right as pieces. 
that's the great thing about what they were doing, which is let's not just, you know, let's not just do a track, forget about it, hope it's successful. If it's not, hand it to a producer for them to do their thing with it and then off to the dance floor kind of thing and just add a little bit on the end and a few bit more rhythm in it. They were actually thinking about how the song actually works as uh, an expressive thing in its own right. So they had all the, 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 the basic components, putting it together to create something that was an expressive, more um, artistic form. And again, it comes back to what I was saying about Brian Eno and um, uh, music for films, because I think it was, that, again, is the closest example that I can think of to wishful thinking and what was going on on wishful thinking. You know, you had certain pieces that had, uh, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, that's from, that's from that track, or yeah. on Secret Wish, that's from that track. Well, okay, oh, this is interesting, they've done that with it. Um, right, very different feeling, you know, great, you know, successful. It's interesting as well, because when they released the Wish Thinking, on the backside of it, on the, on the liner notes, it says, um, it's a souvenir of Propaganda's Autumn 1985 Outside World Tour. And I think even if Paul Morley wanted to do this, there was a, a reason behind it as well. And that was to boost propaganda a bit more, because when they went out on tour, it's been a couple of months since they released the album. So in a way to push it, they say, okay, here's a new release, by the way, uh, with some different variations of uh, yeah. the themes. I wonder how much it's to do with their contractual obligations as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I think that both Michael and uh, Ralph uh, wasn't very happy with this. I think I read that somewhere that they weren't really happy with this remix album and uh, interestingly enough on uh, the liner notes as well it says uh, continuing on from the outside world tour that i just read uh, propaganda performed by claudia brucken susanna freitag and michael mertens with the assistance of derek forbes on bass brian mckee on drums kevin armstrong on guitar and then there is a note not in performance half doctor because um, I think he, he had enough by this point. And yeah, it had to I do think, yeah. not only with the control, with the Sankantan, but I think with the material as well, what was done with it. So It's musical differences. Yeah. Most bands go through this. And we are not going to talk about each individual track here because we already talked about the tracks from A Secret Wish. And these tracks on Wishful Thinking are just, like we said, reworks or remixes of those existing tracks. But one thing I'm going to mention is the names of these. I've always been fascinated by them. They only use one word for each track. So we have abuse, for example, machined, jeweled, laughed, loved. But I think it goes to the idea of, again, back to just what I was saying about being vignettes, being, being yeah. extractions, being little 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 windows on um, the, the kind of general ethos of each song. Exactly, that yeah. So it gives you a little window, those titles. Um, exactly. And the most interesting track uh, for us uh, propaganda fans is, of course, the last track, which is called Thought. And the first two yeah. minutes of that track is actually Discipline. That's right, yeah. The track he initially received via tape <laughs> um, yeah. to sign Propaganda. That's that track. But it's not that track that was on the tape. I think this is the discipline that they tried to produce in the studio once they arrived in the UK. So, But uh, it's a fragment. Something. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously meant something to them, though, didn't it? I mean, it's obviously very it important to the to the band, um, certainly in their earlier incarnation. Yeah. Um, and you wonder what else they'd be listening to, because um, of that period, you know, Cabaret Voltaire, people like that, you know, there's very, very important. And, of course, the music from their home city, I mean, Kraftwerk, obviously, but some of the German bands that were... Go- that were um, working incredibly in event, inventive bands like Cluster and um, Can and people like that that they really, yeah. they might be listening to, um, <clears throat> and how those bands formed propaganda to make propaganda what they were, and again they have that thing that, that, that they're torn between what's commercially successful in the Anglo-American realm yeah. um, and what's commercially successful in Germany, but what's also what's our artistic integrity about you know a lot of the german bands had to do that they had to to weigh up between the, the, those two priorities you know do we want to be successful in america if we do we have to do this which might be contrary to what we would naturally do when uh, planning for this podcast um, i was thinking of these two albums we've been talking about today and um, how they were the last great albums released by Sanctum Tumb in the 1980s. But I think I got a bit ahead of myself there because thinking about it, they still have Andrew Poppy's Beating of Wings to be released, which I, I love. But you can't really compare <laughs> Andrew Poppy with any chart hits or propaganda for that matter. And the following year, 1986, they will still uh, release uh, Frank Coast Hallwood's second album, Liverpool, which also became their last one. And uh, some bits and bobs here. We are, of course, we had uh, Grace Jones as well. That was a collaboration between Island Records and Sanctum Tum. So, of course, Sanctum Tum was not finished. But it's funny, when I thought back about it, it was like, well, propaganda marked a kind of an end point for, propaganda, uh, for Sanctum Tum in the 1980s. But that wasn't really the case if you start thinking about what they actually released going forward. Uh, but a lot of things uh, put them a bit on hold at the end of the 1980s. Things like uh, court cases and other things that happened in the following years. It's just like they run out of steam and the musical landscape changed so quickly for them. I know that um, Paul Morley mentioned in, in some interview in 1985, actually, that I don't know what people want anymore. And interestingly <clears throat> enough, in August 1985, uh, Claudia Brooken had uh, got together with Glenn Gregory uh, to release a single on Sanctum Tump as well. So she already had a side project going on, even if it yeah. was just one single. When your heart runs out of time, I think it was called. Yeah, that was that wasn't. I mean, that was like in. I remember being at the time that that was in the background. It seemed as if that was just a side project from propaganda. It didn't seem to, if my memory serves me right, signal the demise of propaganda or, or imply that they were they were kind of um, deteriorating. Really, I mean, it, it's interesting you mentioned because a lot of people that I knew myself included were waiting for the next incarnation of propaganda. What are propaganda going to do next? You know, yeah. even if they weren't on ZTT, although having said that, if I think back, it was, it's very hard to imagine them not being on ZTT. All of the input that ZTT's media machine were giving them, it was part of the package, you know, yeah. very it much was. part of the 
Just one thing I'll mention just before, I, I, um, when, when we were talking about the tracks from Wishful Thinking, certain section of the tracks um, actually did turn up in John Hughes' Some Kind of Wonderful. I think it was um, the abuse thing turned up in the, in the beginning of the, the film. Some Kind of Wonderful is a rather sweet coming-of-age yeah. teenage film. Um, but I just thought I'd mention that because I, I don't know if I mentioned it before. Going back to what we were talking about, though, when Claudia did leave propaganda for for that period, she joined ACT with a guy called Thomas Lear. Yeah, and, this was um, the following year, 1986. Yeah, the track itself, I mean, is obviously a, a stab, a commercial stab. It's a far more commercially orientated. It fits in much more with the cocktail sort of music of the time bands like i remember do you remember swing out sister bands oh like yeah that? yeah well, the more sophisticated with, uh, side of pop yeah, which yeah. they called it at the time <laughs> it sort of was sort of thing that i i remember at the time thinking yeah it's, it's it's all right but it very much fits even the video it very much fits in with that whole kind of wine bar culture you know of the yuppie sort of yeah. period even if that wasn't its in original intent one gets that sort of impression that it was it was becoming more mainstream the feeling of the bat you know the feeling of what she was doing but then she was going out on her own so fair dues to her you know she was, yeah you know, and uh, interestingly enough in 1986 when she left to form act the rest of the members took sanctum tom to court and to yeah. release them from their contracts so that was the end of propaganda for when it comes to sanctum tom i think it was in 1980 87 or 88 when Frankie did the same yeah because Holly Johnson had a solo career after that didn't he if I remember yeah right. he did, did, they, did they? yeah but uh, it's that classic thing things only with record companies and music things tend to be good for a while but they never last when it comes to other players in when we're talking about propaganda Paul Morley is of course important there as well he uh, was actually married to Claudia Brook and we haven't mentioned this but uh, yes so. I was thinking about that because of course that does have a, an impact on her subsequent career yeah. choices and also on the nature of the band because it's the classic thing if you've got somebody poking I'm not saying that Morley did this um, but it, it, if it was a situation where they were becoming a bit heavy-handed or Paul Morley was taking too much of a creative uh, control of the way the band were published that could cause some issues um, I know enough about band dynamics to know that um, getting the chemistry in a band right is is really important and yeah. if you get somebody taking too much of the credit or taking too much of the artistic control that can affect people <laughs> you know within the band and you start getting um, problems it's the classic band fallout scenario it's yeah. best, in my opinion, epitomized in Spinal Tap. At the end of Spinal Tap, <laughs> but that's another story. <clears throat> it is. No. Yeah, there are very, very few bands, I could count them on my hand, that don't, that continue making good music without um, any discontinuity or breakdown between the members or the record company. Because yeah. um, it is ultimately <clears throat> reliant on. Uh, 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 the money <laughs> from the, the big companies but at the same time during that period a lot of people had started uh, were ahead of the game who were moderately successful musically they'd build their own studios in their house and they could do what they wanted then they were free up to do what they wanted as long as they could get somebody to distribute the records that you know or produce the record they could do it all at home 
Um, yeah. There were a number of, you know, could see the way the wind was blowing. Because by the late 80s, before Acid House came along, and that meant that people basically could make records in their bedrooms. Um, That's true. The, the, the whole um, of music was kind of stagnating a little bit. And um, it took a number of things, uh, you know, uh, to come along and um, shift that. Um, oh. A lot of the Manchester bands came along and, and shifted that. The technology evolved. So a lot of the technology that propaganda were using in 84, 85, which cost as much as a house, you know, if not more, by the late 80s, it was in the hands of people who could afford, you know, you could you could get a, a synthesizer that could do all this. You could get MIDI equipment and um, recording equipment that could do the same kind of thing for a lot yeah. less money. So it um, opened that technology up, democratized that technology. That's true. I'm just going to mention that um, in 1988, uh, we still had um, the old lineup, uh, minus Claudia Brooken, when they signed to Virgin Records. And I think eventually it was just Michael Mertens left and they had a new vocalist called... Um, Bet Her name was Betsy Miller. Yeah, that was it. And they also had uh, the guys we mentioned before, Derek Forbes and uh, Brian McKee, both of them from uh, Simple Minds. And they released an album in 1990 called One, Two, Three, Four. And from that one, I only remember one single. I know they released two, but the first one was called Heaven Give Me Words. And I, we're not going to mention any more about that one. Perhaps we can uh, pick that up in another podcast because I think we talked in length about propaganda and Sanctum today. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it's important that we just mention this one because that's the uh, last album that we saw from um, propaganda. They were, um, were planning to release uh, another record in early 2000s, but uh, it never manifested. And as a footnote, we can also mention that both um, Claudia and Suzanne uh, got together on stage in London in 2019. Unfortunately, I didn't get tickets for that one, uh, where they performed um, A Secret Wish, the whole album, live. So it would be interesting. Uh, there's a couple of uh, clips on YouTube if you're interested to see that one. The sound quality isn't that great, but... At least you get a sense of what it sounded like. People will always easily associate them. Um, the general public, if they if they can remember them at all, would associate them with Jewel, yeah. and you know the, the melodic side of Jewel. Um, but I, I think even more than Doctor Mabuse, the most people who were sort of familiar with the Secret Wish would always think of a Secret Wish as a, as, as as an entire album. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, even though Dr. Movies was released the year before it's, it, and I said, I'm kind of contradicting myself here because I said it's distinctive from the album, but it's, it does in my mind, at least fit in very much with the album. It stands out from the album, but it's still a part of the album. If that makes sense. Yes. You know, you know, it comes along and has its moment and, um, you know, it becomes a, a, a legacy kind of thing, you know, I'm happy with this. Yeah, and I want yeah. to uh, thank you so much, Gideon, for being on this That's podcast fine. and talk about the mid '80s and a brilliant yeah. book called Propaganda. I have to think about what we do next, don't we? Yeah, well, well there's a lot of things yeah. to dive into. 
And to all our listeners out there, a big thank you for listening to this first episode, this very lengthy episode of our podcast. But hopefully you found it both interesting and entertaining. We'll be back soon, as we said, with a new topic. Until then, take care of yourself and stay safe.